is my beautiful sister! Yeah. You little dickens. For such a naturalistic movie, this should have been the one time when Mark Ruffalo would have just played Mark Ruffalo, and yet he's, uh... <laughs> and you sound like Fat Albert for a second. You, sa- you sound like so, Fat Albert mixed with, like, the adults from Peanuts. That's pretty much what he sounds like. I can just imagine him and his whiny little voice being like, Oh, you got something on your cheek there. Let me get that for you. Bad white slavers. <laughs> Good white slavers. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it a point to say Good that I don't think... white slavers only brand once a month. Oh. <laughs> starting to see pictures, aren't you? <laughs> oh, yeah. my gosh. Yeah, that was just... The, Caught um, you off guard, huh? It really <laughs> did, yeah. But, you know... I'll it's... cop to that. I actually did laugh at that part because I just thought it, it was, was really, no, thought it, it was really, really funny. Was. I was like, fuck this old racist guy. <laughs> <laughs> Not fuck your son. Oh, <laughs> Bruce Dern clutched his pearls so much. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this week's episode, we'll be discussing the Quentin Tarantino movie, Django Unchained, starring Jamie Foxx and Christoph Waltz. I made a deal with you gentlemen for that man's life! Yeah, they don't give a fuck about him. They need you. You'll be shot for this? Nah, I don't think so. More like chewed out. I've been chewed out before. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there, everybody, and welcome in to episode 54 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, along with Nick Cheney and Black Phillip here today. <laughs> hey there, troublemaker. <laughs> the Django reference. I, that, in fact, it was. That is Toussaint Egan, not Black Phillip. But if you want to call him that or think of him as that... He is not okay with that, and that's why we're continuing to do it. <laughs> I will guide thy hand anyway. <laughs> that was kind of weird. Um, <laughs> Whatever. So, like a witch. <laughs> if you were not able to pull out from that, we are going to be talking about Django Unchained today. And a big reason we're going to be talking about that is the guest we have today. Her name is Anna... Botazatu. Hello. Did I say it right? Yes, you did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Good job, Alex. Great job, Alex. Thank you very much. This is the first time for me pronouncing someone's name correctly on the first try. It's usually, <laughs> it's usually just like I can say it like five times before, and then like the moment comes, and it's just like. <laughs> <laughs> So. You get stage fright. It's okay. And, yeah, it's, it is okay. And we are on a stage, literally, right now. Yes. Yeah. We've decided to in a dark convert. room. Yeah. Whoa, that's <laughs> it's true. Let's, Just surrounded. Let's be candid. We surround the ghost light. Yeah. That's With a single light bulb. Yes. Yes. I want to play a game. The saw. No, I thought we were talking about the witch, but now we're we're on the saw. I know. I just like to kind of mix it up. That's fine. I just thought that's of like good. a single light bulb. You know. Oh, there were many lights because you know it was like, like a there's like the one image. What am I thinking of? <laughs> yes, I don't know what movie you're talking about. I think but we it's need to do that. the Saw episode again just for fun. We talked about all. seven I know films. we should just do it again, all seven again. Jesus, no! Not I can really. order you guys a trophy for that. <laughs> Thank you. There's a possibility. See? Wow. There we go. I I knew what? we did this podcast for a reason. Yeah, exactly. You have connections now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Anna, 
Uh, before we get into talking about Django Unchained, and also we're going to have a weekend review, um, why don't you tell our listeners, however few they may be, um, a little bit about yourself as both a film viewer and what some of your favorite movies of all time are. All right. Well, hello. My name is Anna. Um, as a film viewer, I'm very much into the box office hits. Um, anything new and popular, I would love to see in theaters just for the joy of being in theater and um, seeing it on the big screen. As far as genre films, love comic book movies. I am a sucker for rom-coms. Sorry, guys. I'm going to bring that up a little bit. No, that's cool. Um, and, you know, disaster films, war films, biopics, anything where some of my favorite actors are in I will give it a chance and I will sit through it no matter how bad it is even if Christian Bale is really hot I'll still watch it um, so <laughs> those are my general tastes as a film viewer sweet so like what are your two or three favorite films of all time oh man favorite films of all time so uh sunshine is definitely up there a sci-fi film by Danny yeah. Boyle yes um really really love him as a director um I will say Legally Blonde because I brought that up earlier <laughs> uh gotta love Reese Witherspoon and you know the interesting narrative on girl power there um and then Batman Begins that pretty much started my um Leap, so to speak, into comic book films. Great origin, origin story, in my opinion. Yeah. I would agree with that 100%, actually. Hmm. Well, cool. I, I'm, that is a pretty wide variety, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you like all of those. That's awesome. Thank you for having me as a guest, by the way. I appreciate this very much. Oh, of course. Yeah. Thank absolutely. you for coming. Yes. Of course. We should be thanking you. Yeah. <laughs> And we, we will. So. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. So uh, let's move on to a week in review, uh, as we have done quite a few times on uh, this podcast. And I guess Toussaint should start, because he seemed to be the most interested in doing a week in review. So. Yeah. Toussaint's got a story, let me tell you. Yeah, I've got a story, because I didn't watch a lot of films. I, I, I watched one film uh, this, this past week, but I also had a really great film experience. Um, because I was able to go to New York for the first time this past weekend or to volunteer for a virtual reality conference. And I actually got to interview somebody for that conference, and it was Doug Trumbull. And if you don't know who Doug Trumbull is, like he was the – he is one of the luminaries of special effects. Like he's the guy who – invented the Stargate from 2001 A Space Odyssey. He worked with, with Stanley Kubrick. He worked on Star Trek The Motion Picture. He's the guy responsible for the Hades opening of Blade Runner. Like, he is that guy. So I got to, like, sit down and talk with him about, like, his last film that he did in, like, 1989 called Brainstorm, which I brought up before, like, on, on this podcast. And I'm really looking forward to, like, when that interview, like, goes up because I'd love to talk about it more. Um, but in, in terms of film, like I just actually watched today, uh, a Spike Lee joint, uh, one that I've been looking forward to for a while that I actually want us to do an episode on in the future called, uh, 25th hour, oh. um, with, uh, with Edward Norton and uh, Rosario Dawson. And I got to say, um, after I, I watched that film, I was like, wow, what the fuck happened? <laughs> like, seriously, what the fuck happened? I mean, like. Like, I give Ridley Scott a lot of shit, but at least he kind of had a reason for what turned him into making shit films. I don't know what happened to Spike Lee, because this film was 
it was phenomenal. I fucking love this film. What the fuck happened to Spike Lee? I think it's kind of a similar, I would say, path that Aaron Sorkin almost went on, but he jumped ship to a much more, uh, I would say, welcome environment for what his changing tastes were, which was mm-hmm. he went from TV to film. Yeah. Because when he stayed on TV with the newsroom, his ideal started to get a little too twisted, uh, whereas I think Spike Lee is the same kind of thing where he was once the person to go to for very, I would say, in-your-face political movies. Mm. And then he just kept hammering home the same political takeover and over and never once tried to mix it up. And then he made that remake of Old Boy that nobody asked for and that nobody really wants to remember. And it's just... I I, I haven't watched Chirac yet, and every single time I, like, wade into that minefield of of different types of sensibilities and politics. I don't know if I actually want to watch it. So his best film in recent years was a very, very non-political one, which was inside man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I heard, know, I heard about that. I need to bang. watch it. That movie is great. Inside is. man is awesome. Yes, yeah. it is. It's great. So, uh, that's, that's me in, in a nutshell for this past week. So sweet. Yeah. Well, we are happy to crack that nut. Thanks man. <laughs> so Anna, why don't you, uh, tell us a little bit about, films you've been watching in the last week or two Alrighty, so um i was a little late to the party with some oscar films for 2015 not 2016 big big asterisk there <laughs> um i recently watched the movie wild with reese witherspoon um biopic film where she portrays a woman going on a hike in the pacific crest trail that is on the west coast and it was wonderful it was made by a french director and um i always appreciate foreign film directors i think they have a very interesting take on storytelling very different from american films where they have a happy ending usually um foreign filmmakers aren't the same way it can be a happy ending in a twist way it can just be in a sad ending and still make you feel good so i do appreciate that and that film was awesome big ups for reese it is really something too that at the very beginning of the film you see her like standing on top of a not a mountain but like this big hill and you know she's on a hike and she just fucking launches her boots off yes. onto the bottom of the mountain and you're just like but you need those yes <laughs> that's right yeah she's wild yeah <laughs> and it sets a great tone for the film because i appreciate the jump in narration from you find out why she throws those boots and then mm-hmm. you find out more of why she even goes on the hike and um, you know, her story growing up in her family, and that was just, I absolutely loved it. It was yeah. amazing. It was a good film. Um, and then I also recently watched The Imitation Game. Oh, nice. Yes, that movie was great. Mm-hmm. Um, gotta love Bene- Benedict Cumberbatch um, and Keira Knightley, and, you know, British actors are always on top of their game. So, yeah. great origin story about Alan Turing, and, uh, you know, big influence about why we're able to do this podcast today with exactly. computers. So, yeah. Yeah. thumbs up to those films. Yep. Cool. Yeah. Didn't you say also that you saw Deadpool? I did see Deadpool. I loved Deadpool. I saw it on Valentine's Day. I knew what I was getting myself into. I didn't fall for the marketing ploy where this was going to be a flowery, fun-loving date movie, but (laughs) I still appreciated it nonetheless, and Ryan Reynolds was great. Um, Apparently, the leading lady is currently on the show Gotham, Mm -hmm. which I did not know, Um, and it was awesome. Big ups for that movie. Deadpool was wonderful. 
We had an episode on it. I loved it. Toussaint thought it was okay, and Nick absolutely hated it. So. We, we had a, oh, we had a, wow. we had a very uh, meet at the at the top of the hill and just argue sort of episode, and I loved it. Well, yeah, yeah we we also had a quite a big argument right after seeing the film oh, at yeah. the movie theater. <laughs> oh, so yeah. there was blood. <laughs> yeah, it there, was. There were a lot of hugs and a Did lot of apologies. Did anybody wear red to prepare for it? Nah, no, I don't think so. Okay. Unfortunately, but, well, the film just taught you that lesson, so it's true. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, and in that film, Ryan. Reynolds, who just really needs to embrace playing the Van Wilder character because he does it so well. Exactly. And, yeah. Yes. The I do appreciated the makeup in um, the film. I don't know uh, about you guys, but yeah. I appreciate makeup and costuming to the utmost when it comes to that. And he's nearing forty. Keep in mind, and Damn. in this, and in the yes, can you believe that? Holy shit! And in this film, it's just whatever they do with the makeup, he actually does look close to a 40 year old man and it is it was kind of a relief so to speak because it's not like he's pretending to still be a van wilder age but mm-hmm. still has that attitude where like he's perfectly deadpool yeah, yeah. so yeah. i obviously agree with everything you're saying pretty much so <laughs> yeah totally that's the right opinion so there you go <laughs> <laughs> it's true well glad i'm here yeah seriously i you'll find out quickly that i hate everything no you don't in fact he does i hate so. almost everything <laughs> <laughs> you don't so uh, this past week, I rewatched a couple of films that I was uh, I was a really big fan of. Um, Spotlight, the winner of Best Picture, I saw that uh, just yesterday with my wife as we sat down and watched it, and we were both big fans. I was again, and she was for the first time. And your wife uh, pointed out something that I completely agree with, which is that whatever Mark Ruffalo was doing with his voice throughout the entire movie needs to stop. And I, I really think he should be ashamed of himself because it's such a great movie. And he's even fine, but he is doing something with his voice that I cannot possibly understand. Yeah, my I wife will. said, I think, pretty much the exact same thing you did, which is that he sounded like he had a bunch of marbles in his mouth. Uh, and it's not... Cause he's, That's why he barely opens it because he doesn't want them to spill out. <laughs> <laughs> he, he really doesn't sound like that. He has pretty clear... That's what I mean. It's so, and and it's not like he's trying to do a Boston accent either because, no. A, it's built into his backstory that he's not a native of Boston per se. Uh, and B, like... Yeah, like, it's, uh, there's just something, like, he just, I don't know why, for such a naturalistic movie, this should have been the one time when Mark Ruffalo would have just played Mark Ruffalo, and yet he's, uh... (laughs) You sound like Fat Albert for a second. (laughs) You you sound like Fat Albert mixed with, like, the adults from Peanuts. That's pretty much what he sounds like. I was gonna say, I, I think... Fat Albert peanut adult is what Mark Ruffalo was going for. The only thing, Did a lot of research. The only thing it could be is that that's what the real Mike Resendez sounds like. But like we talked about on the Steve Jobs episode, yeah. uh, if you're Michael Fassbender, you don't have to do an impression of the character you're no. playing to give a great performance. There are moments when I thought Michael Fassbender was Steve Jobs, and not ever because I. Th- thought he was trying to be Steve Jobs, but yeah. only because he inhabited the character so mm-hmm. well. Uh, there were moments when I thought Mark Ruffalo was pretending to be an actor, and that was distracting. <laughs> Ooh. Damn. I can't necessarily disagree with you. And I mean, I really like the movies. So yeah. It's yeah. just a weird, weird sticking point for me. I definitely yeah. think it was the absolute right choice to win Best Picture, even though I like The Revenant more still. Mm. It's probably, it was a good choice. Yeah. Also, uh, last week, uh, the three of us actually sat down to watch a sci-fi film that I was a huge fan of called right. Another Earth. Yeah. And um, I have to say, I was not necessarily expecting everything that happened in this film, as 
the whole storyline of there being another Earth takes a little bit of a backseat to the actual narrative in the film. But boy, I, I, I have to say I probably like it the most out of all three of us. I was surprised. I was a big fan. I gave it four and a half out of five. You did. And I was I just think we should do an episode on another Earth someday. Absolutely. And actually I think I would be interested if you guys were in doing a double episode on both Another Earth and Coherence because <gasps> I think it would be. Someone's excited. I I, <laughs> I think it would be interesting, not because they're the same movie, because they're definitely not. However, um, the kind of structure they play with is doing something similar, and I think it would be an interesting episode to parallel both of them. So, ha, parallel, right? Because <laughs> yeah, if you've seen either of the movies, right. you probably know why. I no, they're that, definitely but. two opposite approaches for like similar thematic and scientific ground, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah. yeah. So I think that is something we should put in the schedule somewhere coming up. Come on, later on then, this you year. know, maybe we should do like another episode where we play alternate versions of ourselves <laughs> with alternate opinions too. Like how awesome would that be i can do that bizarro jerry that's what that (laughs) (laughs) all right so that was my week in review and let's move on to nicholas oh boy well i there are three things i want to talk about but the first two i'm going to talk about in less than 30 seconds which is i rewatched two paul verhoeven films this weekend yeah uh one was robocop which (gasps) i liked much more the second time it's fabulous it it? is and i like guns 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 I liked it the first time because we talked about it and whatnot, and I certainly was a defender of it and whatnot. But yeah, it's definitely, I feel like the more I watch that film, the better it'll get because mm-hmm. it is just so wonderful uh, and so hilarious. And the, that T9 falling on the stairs. Yes, <laughs> yes. Which I got to say, like I, I watched the Blu-ray um, on my new TV and like it looks worse and yet better than it's ever. <laughs> I know, right? it's, it's so great. Um, and I also rewatched Showgirls, another Paul Verhoeven masterpiece. Dope. Um, yeah, and that that's a great movie right there i watched it with the commentary by i forget what his name is but if you just look up the blu-ray you'll see his name but by somebody who actually is like a host of showgirl screenings like around the world like he does a tour and he does live commentary because he's seen the movie a million times and he says it's like to him the best worst movie ever made and so his commentary is just him I don't know about that. I think The Room might be. Well, have you seen Showgirls? Uh, yes. No. Okay, well then. All right. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but yeah. I haven't I haven't seen The Room actually. Yeah. Really? Yeah, we exist on like opposite sides of the road. We need to like the room is a must watch. I know it is. I just I can't stand Tommy Wiseau. See, but that's why I can watch something like Showgirls because I love Paul Verhoeven. So Mm. I'll even love him when he sins. And um, (laughs) Tommy Wiseau, though, he goes to Q and A and he kind of jacks off all over himself and just did not like he thinks he made something and he's giving in to the persona that people are attached which is that he's this auteur asshole no we're we're just giving him way too many uh, checks to cash i feel like even though it's not a film that's of that stature in terms of its badness but a film that is absolutely awful which is the wicker man with Nicolas cage Nicolas cage pulls the same kind of shit where he's like well we know what we were doing (laughs) but nicholas cage is capable of being a really good actor though too Eh, a couple times no, he actually, like, he, it's just the fact that he doesn't know when not to give those kind of performances because they'll only be bad in the movies that aren't warranting of them. I mean, like, his performance in uh, Adaptation is, I would say, nothing that different than what he's doing in something like yeah. The Wicker Man. It's just in that movie, he's supported by a brilliant script that actually supports those neuroses. Yeah. yeah. 
The Wicker Man's horrible, and he I'm also claims that they knew it was horrible, and they didn't. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I rewatched both of those Paul Verhoeven movies, and I loved him even more the second time around. Uh, the only thing I really wanted to mention was that I also watched a movie called The Children's Hour, which was a film from the 1960s starring Audrey Hepburn, Shirley MacLaine, and James Garner, and mm. it centered around... Uh, two middle-aged uh, school teachers who run the school for girls, and one of the girls, uh, you know, all the girls are like under 12 years old. I mean, they're all young. And one of the girls is kind of a troublemaker, but her grandmother is like a donor, I take it, uh, to the school. So she has a lot of influence as to, obviously, why that girl's even there, even though she breaks every rule. And at one point, she gets so fed up with the two teachers because they have rules that she makes up a nasty rumor that they are lesbian lovers, which, of course, in 20... I would say 16, that sounds innocuous, but back then, I, I mean, even now it wouldn't be that innocuous because I know of people that I know who have faced the same kind of, uh, I wouldn't say maybe to this magnitude, but discrimination as far as like when you hear that kind of thing, when it's like teachers teaching children, especially in this situation of school of all girls. Or the, the recent news about Lily Wachowski. But the the other the yeah. other Wachowski oh, yeah. like coming out of I that. I just read about the, her. The whole yes. reason why like that even happened was much the same reason why Lana Wachowski came out because the Daily Mail decided to blackmail them. Yep, and that's I think right. and I think that's really fucking shit of the Daily yep. Mail. Yeah, the Daily Mail it has just the worst reputation. I don't know why people continue to talk to them. Yeah, um, uh, about the Children's Hour that yep. is based on a play. Yes. Um, and I have seen the play before and it is fabulous, which is why I'm really, really happy that you brought that up because when I saw the play, I was like, this is amazing. And I, every movie that I've seen that's based on a play has been fabulous. So for example, there was a Ryan Gosling politics movie. Um, does anyone the remember Ides this? Of March. Ides of March. Yep. That was based on a play. Yep. Fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. Um, the just one example of many. So I'm pretty much if it's based on a play, I usually seek those kind of movie out yeah. because I love movies that are set on like minimal sets and just yeah. people talking mm-hmm. and just workable dialogue that can just you know be executed so well. Yeah, and I think that was the case here. I mean, it was. Um, I would say what was kind of refreshing about the whole thing is that it was very melodramatic, very hysterical, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, But yet it never – like the thing is that the two women are presumably – because really their backstory isn't important, Mm. but are presumably not lesbians, and that's why – but it never gets like they're not upset because they're mistaken for lesbians. They're upset because of how adults are – letting a child dictate their own life, basically, and, and how that affects their, like, well-being. Now, since this is coming from a somewhat similar time period, are there kind of undertones to their characters like there was in something like um, Alfred Hitchcock's Rope, where, for, for the opposite reasons, like, they have stereotypical things that would make them not a lesbian or something like that. I will say this much because I don't want to ruin anything. Okay. Um, one of the characters is uh, James Garner's almost fiance, which is Audrey Hepburn's character. Mm-hmm. Shirley MacLaine's character is hinted that she may or may not be, and she may be harboring a crush on okay. Audrey. So it's more and ambiguous I, than yes. something like Rope, where it's trying to like undertone and get you to think a certain thing about the characters. It is more ambiguous until the moment the movie becomes explicit. Oh, okay. And then the final act, and I'm not saying which way that leans, mm-hmm. but eventually somebody finally just like 
screams what they are they are because they just don't care anymore and whatnot. And the final moment, uh, if it's the same as the play, which I won't say what it is, but it's a very heartbreaking thing and it's something I did not think that, you know, at least for a movie, uh, was going to end like that way in, in that era. So it was uh it was a it was a very uh very very well done movie and just a very I would say emotionally charged finale that it completely earns. So mm. that was the the children's hour. Cool. And that yeah, that that wraps up my weekend review. And that wraps up our weekend review. Whoa. So good job guys. We made it through. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I already gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll just call it a day now. Just do a week in review and just so. move on. <laughs> Actually, we are going to talk about a film. It's the third Quentin Tarantino movie we've done an episode <laughs> so, on. So you're going to say, like, ever. I'm like, Oh, no. In <laughs> fact, that would be inaccurate. Only because check? he always says, like, you know, like this, the last one was the eighth film. By, this, know. in fact, was the seventh film, yeah. but it's the third film we've done after mm-hmm. Inglorious Bastards and The Hateful Eight. And that is Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained, starring Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, and Leonardo DiCaprio. My name is Dr. King Schultz. This is my valet, Django. Come on over. We got us a fight going on that's a good bit of fun. What'd you dig him up? A fortuitous turn of events brought Django and myself together. Move it. Well, I've heard tell about you. You got me curious. I'm curious what makes you so curious. Something up with these two. Them old boys done rode a lot of miles, went to a lot of trouble just to get that gal. Hey, little troublemaker. You silver tongue devil, you. They playing your ass for a fool. I spent my whole life surrounded by black faces. I only had one question. Why don't they just rise up and, and kill the whites? <laughs> Who knows what could happen? Y'all ain't gonna make it out alive. Anyone bring any extra bags? No, nobody brought an extra bag. I'm just asking. <laughs> In my world, you gotta get dirty. So that's what I'm doing. I'm getting dirty. What's your name? Django. D-J-A-N-G-O. The D is silent. The story, as IMDb claims, is with the help of a German bounty hunter, a freed slave sets out to rescue his wife from a brutal Mississippi plantation owner. That's one of their better ones. I was going to say, that's actually concise, accurate, and uh, not too uh, explaining. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. So, that was actually wrote by somebody who's competent, so that's good. Look at that. Always helpful. They exist. Because I didn't actually pay too much attention to IMDB descriptions before Mm -hmm. we started doing this, but Mm -hmm. I, I wanted to read something, I just chose that. And some of them are honestly so awful; it's almost unbelievable. We have to make <laughs> we have to make note of them. Yeah. Yeah. So this film, uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino, was released in 2012, and I think we can probably say that we all pretty much are mostly fans of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. But um, Anna was we we kind of based this episode around her being on it because. 
when we were all, we all went to the same college. We all went to Aurora University uh, at the same time, too. And uh, me and Anna were in a class together. And uh, she actually wrote a paper on uh, this film, specifically the character of Calvin Candy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe you did a presentation on it as well, right? Uh, I very well might have. Okay, because we we're going to our... ask you to do it. Right okay, <laughs> cool. Um, I believe if we presented our final papers, then we did. Did you present oh, your final paper? I did. Okay, yeah. yes, then I definitely presented it. Okay, but um, we, I was in a group where you were working on uh, the paper and the presentation for it, I believe. And I just remember you having enthusiasm talking about this film. And it was interesting because uh, just of the class we were in, and I was just blown away by you're just like, I just I just love Leonardo DiCaprio and Kelvin Candy. And I'm just like, he's a horrible person, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was very interesting and refreshing. And I'm so glad you decided to join us on this episode because it's going to make it that much better, I think. So... Um, I kind of just talked it up, so I feel like I have to put you, <laughs> I have to put you on the spot a little bit. And that is okay. Have you start off and just talk about Django Unchained and what you like about it or what you don't like about it or whatever you want to think about it. So. Of course. Well, firstly, thank you, Alex, for that introduction. And I, I must say I am very impressed by your memory there. Um, super cool. And the nerd in me is really feeling that I'm most proud of one of those papers that I did write in college. So <laughs> thank you so much for remembering that. That was very much a fun class. I was going to say either you were going to be excited that I remembered or you were going to think that I was an absolute psycho. No, so that, absolutely, absolutely <laughs> not. I have a good memory as well. So awesome. um, really glad that we're both on the same page with this. So Django Unchained. Um, it was fresh in my memory. I believe it had come out um, a couple months before we were assigned that. So mm. it, it was a Christmas release. Yeah. I remember that. Um, saw it in theaters, was blown away. One of the first things that popped out to me of that film was the damsel in distress trope. And that is a feminist angle, so to speak, but Quentin Tarantino does a very smart and very uh, literary portrayal and, you know, fun and bloody portrayal of damsel in distress. And that immediately made me think of Disney princesses and um, Disney movies, so to speak. So I don't know about everyone else, but I was a Disney girl growing <laughs> up. So um, immediately thought. Of, so was I. Oh, yes. All right. Tucson degrees. He was I, also a Disney girl. Growing I up. was a Disney girl. It's fair girl. to say we were all Disney girls at some point. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then we became Disney women. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it's just one of those things that you learn and that you notice uh when Jasmine gets taken away by Jafar, Aladdin comes to the rescue. Um, when the Little Mermaid's voice is taken away by Ursula, Prince Eric comes to the rescue. Just a couple examples, so to speak. And then in this film, Django comes to rescue Broomhilda um, with the help of Dr. Schultz. It's, and it's, it's even uh, contextualized with... Uh with the story of Broomhilda being rescued from the top of a mountain. Absolutely. I'm sorry yes. to interrupt you. So no, no, but, it's okay. Yeah. Um, I just uh, refreshed myself, and I remember Dr. Schultz um, telling the story of Broomhilda, Broomhilda to Django, and that gives Django the inspiration to rescue her. Yeah. Um, so thank you for that, Tucson, for reminding me. Um, and it's just a really 
fun portrayal to see in this film and then also uh, the racial portrayals as well because not only does Dr. Schultz aid Django, uh, Dr. Schultz definitely views Django as an equal, which is um, amazing in this time. He's one of those good people. Um, But in order for them to rescue uh, Broomhilda from Calvin Candy, Django does have to pose as a slave. And then that's how they achieve their plan. Even well, worse he, than a slave, a slave. Yeah, a, a slaver, a slaver. Yeah. Yes, your black slaver. Yeah, yes. because he's playing the role of initially of the the valet, and then he changes and becomes the black slaver and starts yelling at the other slaves and telling them to like get in line and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that couldn't have felt that good. Yeah. And make yeah, no mistake, right. uh, Tarantino is not saying anything good about America because no. he's German, and that's pretty much the only reason why he's like the only white person uh, viewing somebody like Django as, as an equal. Um, so, anyway. Yeah. That's right. Yes. I, excuse me for mixing up the names there. No. Um, oh, no. So, yes. Uh, my overall opinion of the film is that I absolutely loved it. And um, actors really do enjoy working for Quentin Tarantino. It's either you love him or, or you hate him kind of thing. And Leo, the past few years prior to his Oscar win, yeah, um, he, right? he was really going for films that were out of his comfort zone and just something totally different. Um, my favorite part of him being... Like, in the movie, as I'm sure all of you know, is when he's in the dining room with Dr. Schultz, Broomhilda, and Django, and the ruse is happening in front of him, and he breaks the glass in his hand from squeezing it, and Quentin Tarantino ducks around the camera wondering what's happening and Leo doesn't break character and continues to act with his act with his bloody hand and smears Broomhilda's face with his hand covered in blood and just continues going for it and I was just like oh Leo you are the best damn he wanted that Oscar he really did (laughs) and he wanted it so bad he couldn't get uh, that was really disappointing that he wasn't nominated because Christoph Waltz was nominated instead Mm -hmm. and not that his performance wasn't great or anything like that but I I liked the louder performance in the Quentin Tarantino film so but he got his Oscar so it all turned out fine yeah it all turned out great for him he's (laughs) doing okay I think um so yeah, Django is great. Um, and I know you, all of you, did uh, an episode on Hateful Eight. I still rate it better than the Hateful Eight. Good. So yeah, good, good choice. Yeah, <laughs> you're in company here with great. some of them. Oh yeah. yes, okay, yeah. wonderful. Yes, I know Nick, uh, who is a big fan of Django Unchained, uh, and I know he saw it in the theater a staggering seven times. I did. Uh, oh wow. Yep. Was also a fan of The Hateful Eight, obviously, and came around big time on it. And I think he's actually putting them close to the same esteem now. So, Have you, uh, just so I know before, I mean, not that we're getting to be, but I just quick question. Did you at all see uh, either my rating of Django on Letterboxd or I did. my Twitter uh, I did not see your Twitter. Soliloquy. I saw your rating and I was quite surprised by it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Got do, some new thoughts. Do you, do you want to just give those thoughts right now? If, if I may. I mean, we've kind of built it up, so you okay. kind of have to now. Yeah. So go ahead, man. So, yeah, this is a movie, Django uh, Unchained. <laughs> it is. And <laughs> I saw it seven times in the theater. When I saw it the very first time, I knew I had seen something special. I I could not, like, it didn't matter if I even owned the movie, you know, when it came out on physical release, but I was not going to not see it as many times as I could in a darkened room on a big screen. Like, that. there's something about... <laughs> 
You okay there? <laughs> I'm great. Yes. I'm sorry. In a darkened room on a big screen, you get so specific. Just... I, it's true. I, I, it's... I mean, but that was great, though. We almost had like a coffee through the nose explosion. I know. I was like, I was really on the good. edge of my seat. I'm I was, really like, good no. at keeping that from happening, but good. everyone has full permission to just take off their mics and like just revive me if, right. if it com- becomes a safety situation. Anyway. Sounds Go good. <laughs> so, as I was saying, uh, darkened room. Uh, I saw this movie as many times as I could because there was something about this that screamed like a cinematic event, even more so than what what he would follow it up with, which was literally a cinematic event. Um, and I so I absolutely loved this movie. It was one of my favorite movies of all time. And I know people are now starting to look at me because I keep using the word was. I still really, really, really like this movie. And mm-hmm. I probably still love it in some way, you know, whatever. I have to admit that this was my 10th time watching it uh, total. And I think, my, my, I'll say this, my opinion of it slightly diminished. And I honestly don't think it has to do with the number of times I've viewed it because I've viewed all of my favorite movies like an unhealthy amount of times. <laughs> I've seen Coherence 10 times, I think. How many I, times for Magnolia? Actually, that one because it's three hours and because it's emotionally draining. I think I watch like once a year, mm-hmm. so not that many. Yeah, because I don't want to ruin that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I honestly don't think that it was because I had seen it for ten times. Now, I think there is something. I would say I think things are different, both with myself as a film viewer and both with the world at large. I mean, there is a different climate uh, now. Uh, than there was back in 2012, and it sounds like, like oh, nothing can change that much in so many years. Uh, but it's no, it's, a lot of a, a lot, lot of shit went down. Yes, things uh, were not so chill. Yes, and you know, I mean, we're living in the era where you know uh, people are saying "Make America Great Again," and uh, anyway. But we're also living in an era now where certain presidential candidates are apparently. Um, having people do some sort of pledge to them at their rallies and putting their arms up towards them. Wow. We're living in an era where yeah. CNN... There's a new segment. We're living in an era. We're, we're living in an era <laughs> where on CNN you can have a, a panel between um, a black newscaster and a white politician arguing whether or not the G, the GOP should recognize the KKK as part of their constituency. Yep. Or whether in an all-white panel on Fox News... Uh, <laughs> On, on whether society should even at all use the N-word or, you know, like there's yeah. there's a lot of things uh, happening in the world. And, and, that and not is, to say that there wasn't racism back no, in 2020. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I mean, it's just coming to starker focus now. Coming to starker focus and things fluctuate. And not the fact like racism fluctuates, but as far as, like you just said, our our perception of it, our our tolerance of it, our, our dealings with it, you know, like that's just something that changes and it and that's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on how it changes. Um, and I and I'm not. I'm going to try not to repeat our Chinatown episode where I kept talking about inherent vice. You're going to talk about inherent vice with Django? No, I was going to say that would. That's quite would a that leap, there, man. So Doc Sportello is kind of like the Django. <laughs> no, uh, but I do feel like half. I won't say half. I'll say part of my my opinion right now on Django Unchained is informed by the fact that I live in a post-Hateful Eight world. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, so I, I could maybe talk about that later, or at least some of it later. Mm-hmm. But so to surmise or summarize whatever, I, I really do enjoy Django. I think it's a fascinatingly 
entertaining movie. I think Tarantino is seriously one of the greatest storytellers of, of our generation, like, on, on any medium. Like, he knows, I mean, once again, he, he's made up a nearly three-hour movie, and he packs, like, what should basically be, like, a miniseries worth of information and characters, uh, and yet still somehow does it naturally and succinctly for me. I mean, mm. it's just amazing. Like, there is not a wasted scene in this movie. Like, every glance... I mean, even when uh, Django at the end blows up the the three Australians, um, <laughs> that effectively wraps up one of the character arcs in the, that was introduced later with um, the... Uh, with the unspoken, I would say, character drama between Django and the one slave mm-hmm. who clearly finds what Django is doing, uh, shall we say, wrong and... Reprehensible. Yes, and like, it's not so much that like he completely redeemed himself, but just like his smile and knowing glance that kind of, you know, just that says so much that that's, like, that's how you know you're in the hands of a Gibson storyteller, where he can wrap up subplots with a look. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I think everybody in this movie is fantastic, performance-wise. I, I think I actually and and I think might agree with this, which is I think Calvin Candy is maybe the only like genuinely interesting character in this movie because I like all the other ones, but he has this weird kind of nuance to him that is saying something about I think uh, uh, slavery back then and maybe racial tensions uh, now. I mean, it's, it's uh, and isn't some of that nuance also kind of like colored by this implicit? incestual relationship with his I mean it's not even implicit I yeah, mean every, every single time like they were in the there's room there's a deleted together, scene somewhere there's a deleted the scene somewhere I'm just like those people probably fuck that's really weird <laughs> it's yeah. true I mean hey when you when, when, when you're raised to be like, when you're raised beautiful. on a place called Candyland yeah. and when, when, when you when you have your sweet. one time in the film where you do your Leo scream where is my beautiful sister yeah. I mean you little dickens <laughs> Yeah. Uh. yeah. Um so yeah, I mean I, I, I like so many parts of this movie. They uh the the, the action scenes when there is some uh, is great. I love the way it appropriates uh, the Western genre. Uh and and I you know, I even something that I, I wouldn't say I'm a hundred percent behind. I still love the way he uh he come fully committed to his Revising history and in, in a way that can be both empowering and uh, liberating and and like I might mention later and yet maybe somewhat uh, dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- those are my opening thoughts for okay. right now. So. I will actually uh, go next, I think, because I actually had an opposite reaction from you. Where even though this was in my top twenty-five films of all time already. Uh, prior to watching it the last time, I actually uh, like this film more after this last viewing, and actually, it's now uh, going to be higher on my list, even higher than before. Whoa. Wow! Uh, yeah, don't please don't. No, please don't. <laughs> we it took so long for us to get away from that Owen Wilson thing, I and I start we're, the episode over. <laughs> this is two episodes in a row now where you've started it again. So please don't. It's Black mo- Philip, cool it. <laughs> so. Uh, I just think that even though this is not my favorite Quentin Tarantino film, which is still reserved for Pulp Fiction, which is my second favorite film of all time, this is by far the most entertaining Quentin Tarantino film I have ever seen. And I think that's why I like it so much and I give it such a high score now. Because this film combines everything that I genuinely love about what Quentin Tarantino does as a filmmaker, is that he tells an extremely intricate story 
and yet makes it so much fun that I, I can't even can't even get over how fun this film is. And maybe that is what makes this so different from The Hateful Eight, even though this is doing a lot of the same kind of themes that The Hateful Eight has. Uh, it's about slavery. It's a, it involves bounty hunters. Mm-hmm. However, this film, just for me, is just so damn entertaining. I can't even, I can't even get past it. Yep. And it, it's poking fun at, at slavery is just, for some reason for me, I'm just able to be totally on board with it. Because I feel like, even though we are in a quite different landscape, I would say. I, I, I don't know if I would agree that it's quite as different as you are saying, I, although I will agree that it is, it is different. Um, I, I guess I still feel like sort of that jab at how ridiculous this was at that time and how ridiculous people are with slavery today. And I don't mean that saying that anything against people who think that racism isn't real. I'm saying that people who believe that white people that we're done are with that. <laughs> well that we're done with that and people who genuinely believe that white people are of higher esteem or being or whatever mm-hmm. than than anyone whether it be black or asian or whatever in, in this film just totally just jabs at that the entire time and how ridiculous it is and also has this character of dr king schultz who is this um unfortunately a, a little bit of a Brad Pitt showing up at 12 Years a Slave. I was going to say, the parallel between marriage, especially because they came out like very close to each mm-hmm. other as far mm-hmm. as one was 2012, I think the other one was 2013. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that you have like, apparently the only way we can write, uh, I would say, good-natured white characters in the middle of a slavery era is to make them foreigners. Well, to make them foreigners and to make them show up and be the big hero. Mm-hmm. and and have, But at the same time, though, be, by saying that, he also um, just kind of is the starting point for Django, and Django really goes off on his own and becomes his own person throughout the film, and isn't just totally reliant on Dr. King Schultz to you know bring him to places and, and whatever. So it's yeah. it's it is a really nice story, and this movie is so fucking hilarious at almost every turn, with the exception of the Mandingo fight early on, which apparently Quentin Tarantino thought was one of his most hilarious scenes he's ever directed. Yeah, uh, yeah. I want to talk yeah. about that. Yeah, that's uh, I have to admit, like that that knowledge of his reaction to that. I will admit, subtly spread to other comedic scenes. Not because I still didn't find them as funny, or maybe I didn't find them funny or whatever, but because I'm like, so this is from the same mind that finds this funny, and mm-hmm. if I find this funny, then is this as funny? If what, I, you know, what does he what think that? about this scene or that scene? Right, you know? and I, it's just something that's always in the back of my mind. Yeah. But there, but it, it's. I think what is so funny in this film for me uh, is the little things, which Tarantino is absolutely amazing at small details, whether it be the guy on the motorcycle who is involved at all with the story flying through the barn, um, in, uh, well, why can't death proof death proof. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this film, like when the door swings open and we see the room of white people with their black slaves doing the choo choo song. And it's just, it's just so ridiculous and yet so amazing at the same time. And yeah, that, that scene is almost surreal. I mean, <laughs> just because it's like this whole other thing happening uh, regardless of whether we're going to actually see it or not. Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh, yeah. And like when they had that exact same scene when they were walking up the stairs to meet Calvin Candy for the first time and uh, the their host says, oh, he prefers to be called Monsieur Candy and then uh, Christoph Waltz says something in French and he doesn't speak French. <laughs> you only embarrass him. Yeah. 
<laughs> like he he prefers to be called Monsieur Candy, but he doesn't speak French. What a great <laughs> introduction to that character too. Yeah. Absolutely, he's not that, even on on screen. I said we are already introduced to the fact that he likes to appropriate other cultures for his uh, for advantage. his ego. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And I, I just this this film the script. The actually beautiful, terrific cinematography by Robert Richardson, yep. which I will say uh, I think is is on point with other Quentin Tarantino films, and I actually preferred it to the work he did in The Hateful Eight. I think it's glorious in this film. He certainly has a lot more to play with. Yeah, here. and also, too, the scenes that are, are so weird because they can be used for kind of comedic effect, but also work great as like an actual like beautiful film scene. The scene where we have the music start playing, the small part of Ennio Marconi's score that actually was used in this film <laughs> uh, and where we zoom in on Django with the scene behind him and he's got that ridiculous blue outfit on as he's seen the first two Brittle Brothers. And he's like, just, dandy. Yeah, and it <laughs> zooms in and it's just like the mo- one of the most amazing, beautiful cinematic scenes and yet it has this ridiculous, he looks like the black Captain Hook. Like it's, <laughs> it's just... Black Hercules. <laughs> black D'Artagnan. <laughs> It's just D'Artagnan was black, man. Come on. Oh, you're thinking, no, he was not. You're, no, you're sorry. Thinking of, oh, uh, 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 oh, sorry. Alexander Dumas. Yeah, and Alexander Dumas. I don't think he would approve. He no, approve. yes, I'm sorry. I got that confused. Real good. But really quickly, finishing up my opening thoughts as I've dragged on a little bit here, I couldn't have enough to say that I love about uh, Django Unchained is that it is just everything I really love about Quentin Tarantino, and a lot of reasons why I love this movie was a lot of reasons why I could not love. Uh, the Hateful Eight, uh, as much as other people did. So I'll end there, and I'll obviously have more coming up soon, but we'll move on to our last person who has yet to give his first thoughts, and that is Toussaint. Okay. So first off, before I launch into my thing, I just want to say, Nick, I totally respect and like very much am thankful for the fact that you were able to open and talk about like how your impressions, because I know that you very much love Django Unchained. Oh, yeah. Um, like, you, I was probably the biggest championer of this film, I you think. Were. Like, as of maybe even, like, a week ago, or just as far as us exactly. three. Exactly. And, yeah. I, and I think that, like, I totally respect, like, your approach. Not, not saying I, I disagree with anybody else, but particularly, like, Nick, with your regard of, like, talking about this film in regards to how it has changed from your initial viewing in relation to everything else, that you're willing to be able to talk about this as an artifact that does not exist in separate, like, it does not exist separately from the culture that spawned it, but rather it evolves alongside of it. Like, I feel like that is a, that is a quality that is lost on even some of the best of critics. And I am very, very, I'm, I'm very thankful. I'm very proud that, to, to hear that. I'm sorry. Well, thank you, it, 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 make, it makes me happy. Cause I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, when I first went to go see this film um, on, I think it was Christmas day for, uh, for 2012. Like I remember this film being, I, I'll argue this that I think that Django Unchained is probably one of the most commercially like out there, the, the the most culturally like present films that he's that he's ever created, even more so than than Kill Bill, which was my first film that I actually saw of his like in theaters, mm-hmm. just because there was so much controversy about it. It was like this idea about oh this black slave who's like enjoying killing white people. Oh, I'm gonna clutch my pearls um, <laughs> on Fox News, but I really just. Uh, I, I really, really just enjoy this film. I think that Jamie Foxx really adds a lot to it. Like I'm, I'm always surprised seeing him act because I know he's an actor. I know he does music. I, I, I don't, I don't pay attention to him. Sorry, I know he's an actor. I know, I know. Yeah, I know he's. It an, says so I, in the credits. I, yeah, it says so in the credits. Was but, he and Ray? I don't know. Yeah, I, I just don't pay attention to him. He was Ray? I don't pay attention to him very like frequently just because. 
You're racist. Well, no. <laughs> Fuck off. Anyway, I don't pay attention to him frequently because I just don't feel like he delivers any type of roles that I'm really interested in personally as 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 a, a, a film goer. He's he also d- got a pretty short list to draw from. Exactly. I mean, he's not like he he's, does. He's, yeah. Yeah. It's not like he's been like I think that's actually one of his greatest strengths is that mm-hmm. he's very picky about his projects. Yeah. Amazing yeah. Spider-Man too. I mean, right? I don't give a fuck about that. As you say, <laughs> Collateral. I, don't give a fuck with I was going to say Collateral. That was great. Collateral was great. Yeah. yeah. Like, so, like you can you can pick and choose like from like a pool of like maybe eight films mm-hmm. like right that. Yeah. Um, but there is a lot of things that I like about this film. I love. Jamie Foxx was great. Kerry Washington was great. Uh, Christoph Waltz was great. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio was great. Uh, Samuel Jackson was great. There's so many people. I, I have to just condense this. Um, I don't want to talk about. I, I, I want to talk about the qualities of this film itself, and that I think that as as the continuation of a black exploitation like like tradition, I feel like Quentin Tarantino has really built his his body of work, his personal style. Off of appropriating these grindhouse sensibilities and black exploitation and black exploitation, not to give like a history lesson or anything, but I feel like I have to in order to talk about why Django is so significant. It's like black exploitation was a, a term coined by one of the heads of the the NAACP to refer to a body of work that came out over the the 70s that was mostly created by white people who pretty much were given the directives like, okay, we need you to create like these low budget. Um, film starring black people and starring like black ideas and stuff in order to appeal to inner city like like black theaters and stuff mm-hmm. like that it was both something that was progressive and also regressive because it was playing to stereotypes about what black people wanted to see but also it kind of led to more prominent black actors kind of like pushing into like even the fringes of like genre films like enter the dragon like it had a black exploitation type character in that and that was only because of the precedent of like black exploitation films before that. Um, and going jumping forward to like Django, I think that this is pretty much one of the best evolutions of that that kind of format. And it also kind of ties into its its music design as well because it it's basically like this combination of spaghetti western like revenge sort of like scores mixed with asynchronous kind of like juxtaposed like. Uh, just just mashups like where you have James Brown and Tupac Shakur like going at it in like Unchained which is like one of my favorite fucking songs of the entire thing and you have Rick Ross talking about I need a hundred black coffins for a hundred bad men another another aspect that I really like about this in in historical context is just how it it's not trying to be historically accurate it's it's paying homage not only to the the film that kind of preceded it in the nineteen in nineteen sixty six, which was called Django, and it starred uh, what was his name? Franco Nero. Franco Nero, who actually has a cameo role oh, in this yeah. in this, where he's like one of the Mandingo like like mm-hmm. uh, sponsors, and he asks Django how to spell his name, and he's like, "Do you know how to spell?" It? And it pans back to him, I'm just like, "Hell yeah, that guy <laughs> knows how to spell his name because that's his name too." Um, but. Um, I, I, I also think that it's a, a really glaring look at antebellum era America, like right after the American Revolution, where you saw the South like come into its own as an economic power off of the backs and bones of black men, women, and children, and using their slave labor in order to basically create like to pick cotton and to and to, and to create textiles and other things like that. And I just think that it it really kind of I, I wish I never knew that Quentin Tarantino thought that scene was funny because to me that scene like I, I feel like it really does 
there's so many scenes in this in this film, especially with the Mendingo fight, with the guy being torn apart by the dogs, with Kerry Washington like being branded, like all of those scenes. I feel like or to, pulled out of the hot box, or pull, yeah. pulled out of the hot box. And Worse it, than all that for me is uh, is Calvin wanting to show off her scars. I mean, I don't think there's yes. a more yes. de- dehumanizing yes. moment. And, and, and it's just movie. like you see you see this this world of. Of poshness, of of privilege, of 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 apparent civility, of southern civility that is built on the on the foundation of bone meal of like countless people who have been killed and marred and just dehumanized to such a point. And all I can think of is like if he fought that Mandingo fight was funny, he must have thought that the guy getting torn apart by dogs was hilarious or like um, like that that scene like him watching the dailies of of Kerry Washington getting a. Uh, Getting branded, I, I can just imagine him and his whiny little voice being like, "Oh, you got something on your cheek there. Let me get that for you." He just seems like that kind of guy, and it, like if he if he thinks that's kind of funny, and it's just it. I'm 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 going to divorce the the, the creator from the actual like creation and saying that I really here we say annulled by the way annulled <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I'm I. I really enjoyed Django Unchained, and I'm really looking forward to like talking to it about more of you guys. So, can I ask uh, just a general question before we get into more of a you know just open talk about yeah. film? Uh, I think there are a lot of parallels between Django Unchained and Tarantino's previous film to it, Inglorious Bastards. Um, do you think that that's a fair sort of statement? As we see in the previous film in glorious bastards where jew jewish people are killing germans specifically hitler shooting him multiple times in the face mm-hmm. and in this film you have a former black slave who goes around killing white people for the most part uh, do, do you think that's a fair assessment and do you think that that was done on purpose and we see in the hateful eight a much different film um do you think that it's making light of that is a good thing or do you think that it is just giving this sort of weird satisfaction to saying look at this black person kill white people doesn't that make you feel good like that doesn't really it doesn't really do anything other than watch him shoot this white guy six times in the face well like I I think that there's actually a scene in Django Unchained that directly mirrors one from Inglorious Bastards the opening scene from Inglorious Bastards where Christoph Waltz is playing uh, the villain, and he decides to code switch into a different language in order to pretty much deceive um, the, the 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 French Jews who are are hiding uh, from from the Nazis. And then you have in Django, where again he code switches into German with Brunhilde in order to avert the the wandering ear of like anybody who's sympathetic to to to, to Candy in order to like basically converse with her that we are here to save you. Like those are like two coin flips simply because of how polar opposite those two characters are but i totally do agree that there is something there's there's something a little bit unsettling there, there there's something and i think that just goes directly to the heart of black exploitation films in their name and i'm just like they're supposed to be like these these empowerment narratives but at the same time are they just kind of like playing into some very gross skewed gratifications that like are being imposed like, on me like Django whipping the the um one of the brittle brothers and then grabbing the gun and turning to the other slaves who are there and just going, y'all want to see some and then shooting him six times in the face. Right. Not that that is a very entertaining scene that, that is that guy getting his ass whooped was like one of the funniest parts for me. Okay. But like, but what I'm oh, saying, yeah. but what you're saying with the, the follow up, well, you want to see something. Well, that, that, that part specifically, mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like Tarantino 
quite a few times throughout his films, not just this one and in Glorious Bastards, but I feel like has winky things at the audience where he has a character say something where he's really actually talking to the audience, not to the characters this in the film. This might be my greatest work yet. Well, that's the, probably the most glaring uh, one of those. But that line, I feel like, is Jamie Foxx t- talking on saying, y'all want to see some, and then shooting the guy a bunch of times in the face. It, this is coming from somebody who I just said how much I drew, do genuinely love this film and feel like it's so um, so much enjoyment and I, I just love watching every single minute of it pretty much. But at the same time, like it, it's just Tarantino, like let's showing you black black person shooting white people almost comically throughout the entire film and killing them in a comic almost exploitative fashion. That's not almost, it is. Yeah. <laughs> because and, the story, yeah. like, at least for me, like, it's, it's definitely exploitation, not just because it's clearly as far as, like, what he set out to make, but also because if you, if you change the races, this movie, A, makes no sense, and, and B, become, becomes something so drastically different. But um, I, I do have very specific thoughts on the question you're asking, which mm-hmm. is that what... I think you're right in the sense that they're doing a very similar, uh, I want to say they're, they're telling, uh, uh, for me, both movies are telling a, a certain joke, and I feel like the joke almost becomes obliviously offensive in Inglorious Bastards, because I don't know that he had a handle on the separation of, uh, like, using it as a backdrop and actually, like, like... It, it, there, there, there's the difference that makes the two films different for me, even though they're trying the same thing almost, is that in Django, we see the horror of slaveries, of slavery, and in Inglorious, we're just supposed to know what the Holocaust was, you know? And I think there's a big difference between those two uh, appropriations of revising these histories, and that's why Inglorious Bastard doesn't always work for me, the same way that Django does. And yet, also, like I kind of alluded to earlier, Upon this rewatch, I was a little troubled by the ease that Tarantino, I would say, slips into exploitation mode without any, I would say, forethought into, I would say, how condescending its liberation can be. Like, it's there, there's something uh, I would say that, like, and to regroup it back to as far as, like, to jump another generation of in his movies, this movie, it like i think i forgot who wrote this article but somebody wrote an article online it might have been devin farachi actually which is really weird because i oh. mostly don't like any, oh. anything he writes except, from uh from birth death movies yeah whatever it's birth called movies, death. yeah i think he wrote this so it's weird that i'm even bringing this up because, yeah but he wrote something that i actually agreed with which was that Django Unchained is the Lincoln letter in The Hateful Eight, which is something that disarms white people in the presence of black people. Like, And how we can go along with that false narrative because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Mm. And I kind of agree with that because mm. I think there's a danger, especially now that I said earlier that I think we live in a different time. Like, I, I think... Django, let's put it this way, Django was supposed to be the second in a trilogy of historical revisionist film. That was his original plan. And I think it says a lot that he dropped that altogether after Django. Like, shit happened, and he could no longer rewrite history because he realized that 
what was happening now is just as fucked up as pretty much what was happening then. So better to how just... can you write something that's more fucked up than yeah. yeah. And so instead of trying to re like revise the past, let let's just show it as it was, which, which I think he did in Hateful compared to obviously these two movies, uh, Inglorious and Django, because that's that was one of the things I was struck by before I pass it back is that I cannot believe now that I've rewatched it that. The Hateful Eight was the movie that got people concerned about him using the N-word. Because, I'm sorry, but in Django, it is used not just more, like pretty much twice as much, uh, but it is used in scenes where people probably wouldn't have even used it. I mean, every character uses it for no, sometimes for, I wouldn't say for good reason, but for probably historical accuracy. Like when, you know, uh, bad white slavers are talking to black slaves mm-hmm. like yeah okay. bad white slavers <laughs> good white slavers <laughs> i'm just trying to make it a point to say good that i don't white think slavers only brand once a month oh <laughs> fuck oh man and uh, i just i was trying to make a point that like i don't think that there's a right way to use it but like um i i feel like this movie got its giggles off by using it as much and that's what the whole slave setting i think kind of gives it like it's almost like it wrote I don't know, like, it gives it permission to use it as many, many times as he wanted to. Mm-hmm. Like, it's kind of critic-proof in that way. And, um, I mean, it's just, it's every other word in this movie. And I'm not saying that I even have the right to be offended by it, because it, obviously it has no personal meaning to me, so therefore I don't want to lead the charge in any way. Uh, I, I'm just, like, so astounded that it was The Hateful Eight and not this movie. But in another way, I'm not, because I think this movie extends an olive branch to its audience uh, as, like, it's okay to watch this and it's okay to be entertained uh, in a way that I don't think uh, The Hateful Eight does. I will say that I agree with you that I totally understand why people, not that I understand, but I I can very much guess why people would be more offended by it. And I I just feel like for the same reasons why I like this film more than I like The Hateful Eight, I was just flat out more entertained by this film than The Hateful Eight. Yeah, I agree. And I totally understand that. And that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said, and I think that's dangerous. Because I think... If you appropriate it to the extent that he does, and I say this as a fan of the film, so mm-hmm. I guess I'm not trying to talk it down, but I'm also just trying to give another side to it. Right. But the, there's only so far you can go before you're you're perpetuating the joke itself. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. There's just something wrong about it in some ways, and and in another way, he's a master storyteller. So I think he told the story without actually, I would say crossing the line but i also think he moved the line to his advantage so that he wouldn't step over it there's, a, there, there's always this this dangerous uh this dangerous area on the spectrum of like using race as a springboard for humor because like it, not to tangentialize too far and stuff but like you you had cases you got cases of like that in the the early 2000s with like Chappelle's show which was the most popular show on television he was the biggest like comedian mm-hmm. of all time and the reason after the fact that we learned why he like left is because he he slowly began to realize that the people who were writing with him the people who were working with him that instead of the him him being in on the joke, the joke slowly became being on him, and it sort of almost took on the the uncomfortable, like dark undertones of like a modern contemporary minstrel show. Yes, and it was yeah. So yeah. That, and that, 
And that's a really good point that you bring up because Quentin Tarantino does come from a place of privilege being a successful white man in cinema. So I'm really glad that you brought that up, Tucson and Nick. Who owes his entire career to African-American culture. I mean, he's essentially... He's like the Rolling Stones of uh, of filmmakers. I was going to say somebody like Eminem. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, as far as like use the provocation to sell and also... Bill's entire language, visual language in this case, uh, and storytelling. On being uh, a white rapper, yeah. white filmmaker. And like yeah. getting off on being able to say the words he, no other white person can say, so yeah. to speak. Well, what about in Pulp Fiction, which is, again, one of my Wait, favorite films of all time? It. He does, and Jules, played by Samuel L. Jackson, was probably one of the most stereotypical black people ever. He yep. really is Jerry curls and all. Yeah, yeah. And, and and the way he talks, and even he has a fucking wallet, and he has the name engraved on it, "Bad motherfucker." I mean, he's a black exploitation character yes, available for is. purchase. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But but I'm totally on board with what you're saying. Even though I'm a huge Tarantino fan, like yeah, he, so he, am I. He, it, yeah. it, and that and that and that's what I think is almost sick about my love for Tarantino is that like I I would condemn everything that he does if he wasn't so fucking good at it mm-hmm. and therefore like I, I'm, I'm, I'm I'm of two minds so hmm. to speak and and that's why I I feel like this movie does show all of his strengths which is what he's so good at you know his storytelling uh, whatever and also shows how dangerously close he comes almost every time. The only movie where he's really did not do it was one of his most, I think, African-American influenced films, which is Jackie Brown, which just tells a straight up... I mean, there's black uh, black exploitation elements to it because Jackie Brown is quite literally introduced in this, you know, very uh, very black exploitative way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that whole movie is about like I would say upending those conventions and actually just telling a story about a human being regardless of race and whatnot. And I also think that... um... Especially in the case of Jackie Brown, I think that film in particular, it's interesting that you say that because I would argue that Jackie Brown is probably like the least watched of his films in the body of his work, even more so than like Death Proof, which is part of like a double feature with uh, Robert Rodriguez. Um, I I think that 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 whole dichotomy of like being of two minds, I think that's necessary in order to – I personally think that's necessary in order to like – be a fan of Quentin Tarantino because if you're just like all in on that stuff, then I'm going to be a little bit concerned. Yeah. Like you're going to be if you're going to be that guy who's just going to be doing like the Santa Claus laugh like every single time like the N word is said in a screening of uh, of hatefully. Ho, 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 he said it. Um, I just, well, I mean, we talked about it in the episode, but there are there were a lot of concerning things about society, not just with racism, but when they are hanging. When they are hanging the uh, Daisy Domergue in the hateful yeah. eight, there is a guy who is like getting off behind us yeah. on a woman being hung. I'm like, holy shit, dude! Yeah. You might need to get your life together. Oh right? my yeah. gosh! Yeah. I'm He's... so glad that I wasn't in that theater when that was happening. <laughs> it yeah. was like it was uncomfortable. I oh saw that goodness. movie four times in theater because I love Quentin Tarantino. Apparently, and <laughs> I would say all but the last time because there was barely anybody in that theater. Uh, there was somebody in every screening that was at least a laughing at every n word and b. I would say having some kind of joyful reaction to the climax of that movie, which is kind of weird. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, yeah. I mean, in comparison, comparing theater laughs, like I do agree with everyone. We're all on the same page. Django was more entertaining. Yeah. I want to say when I was in theaters and saw Eightful, Hateful Eight, there was a 
tone of just being largely uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and god bless ennio morricone's score that shifted the tone when necessary because i when i was with my friend i was like this is just off the wall right now yeah as samuel jackson is just tipping his cap as he's receiving starting to see pictures aren't you (laughs) oh my gosh yeah that was just the, um, Caught you off guard, huh? It really <laughs> did, yeah. But you know, I'll it's... cop to that. I actually did laugh at that part because I just <laughs> it was no, it really was. I was like, "Fuck this old racist guy!" <laughs> <laughs> Not fuck your son. Oh. <laughs> Bruce Dern clutched his pearls so wow. much. I said the same thing in that episode. Oh, oh my god! Yeah. Oh boy. Oh dear. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't get me started on the hateful eight because I'll go for another hour. But uh, yeah. but yeah. Oh. Um, yeah, I mean, th- this this film, Django Unchained, I-, I think it's very interesting that when you look at just the box office, as Django is a very successful film at the box office, making $450 million. The Hateful Eight was pretty much a disappointment, making only $150 million, which is uh, Tarantino's lowest output in quite some time. And mm. I, I think it's very interesting that that happened because, just like we have been mentioning multiple times, Tarantino's earlier films, Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, were, I think, far more entertaining, especially Django, than The Hateful Eight. And I, to go along with what Nick and Toussaint have been saying, that The Hateful Eight is trying to, I think, say something a little more of substance, whereas Django is saying something, but also entertaining you at the same time a lot more than The Hateful Eight does. And it's, it just says something, I think, more about what our society in terms of what they go see when they see films that that film, uh, the hateful eight was almost, it wasn't even a failure at the box office. It was not anywhere near the magnitude of the success that Django Unchained was. And it's just, just very interesting that people hear Tarantino and they know everything about it. And in a film that is definitely different from what his usual fare is, even though it has a lot of the similar things, um, people just, decided not to go and if he wanted to make money he very easily could have because his original the whole reason why the hateful eight exists was because it was at first a sequel to Django, mm-hmm. and we all know that america loves sequels yeah absolutely i will say one thing that bothered me the most about um comparing the hateful eight and Django unchained Django unchained is a long film and when i saw it in theaters it definitely didn't feel that way and that speaks a lot to how you watch a film and um how entertaining it is and what the pacing is like that i think that in my opinion that movie did everything right with hateful eight i didn't mind the chapter so much as the climax being and the resolution being so late in the film i was really wanting to get out of the theater at that point now anna did you see the general theatrical release or did you watch the road road show version? i saw the general theatrical release that- i believe the road show was only available downtown yeah was- and in, in south barrington where we saw it but yeah that was even longer so okay mm-hmm. with oh an intermission yeah. Oh, and you guys got the intermission too. That's yeah. that's like a cool time capsule thing yeah, to have yeah, in yeah. a film. Yeah. So, um, what what do you guys think about the length of time? I I'll say this much. I used to think, and I still do, as far as like I think for being a two hour forty five minute film, Django and Chain is pretty wonderfully paced. Mm-hmm. I I will admit this rewatch. Uh, one thing that I had problems with it. Even though like I still enjoy mm-hmm. like a lot of the acting, a lot of the moments, whatever, was that it's uh it it's I wanna say there is an 
hour and a half left to go before candy is even introduced. It it essentially is a setup for a completely different movie practically mm. until we get to the real movie. And I that wore on me a little bit because mm. it was kind of like Tarantino uh just I don't know, uh trashes gone gone with the wind type plantation movies for like a good hour and 15 minutes and then it's like let's get to the narrative and that's why i kind of prefer movies like the hateful eight or his, of his or like Wizard dogs um I'll, even though i don't even like that movie as much but i i think the first hour of this movie maybe the more times i've seen it maybe that's just it uh the more i realize how disconnected it is even if it plants the seeds for what comes later because he you know he just he's got to kill the brittle brothers but they ended up being like actually not important whatsoever. they were very brittle <laughs> that's, that's a that's a Nick joke right there. Yeah. Yes, sir. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Nick. But <laughs> but I, I, I like it's just kind of weird how like we're introduced to like you know the brittle brother the wait is it the brittle brothers or is it the speck brothers wait brittle Do brothers you know and the Django. brittle brothers yeah. yeah and like we're introduced to that the, whole the, scene the speck brothers uh, yeah what am I thinking of oh the speck brothers are the um, um, I think are the brothers that have Django as a, their slave in the beginning. That's right. Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, yeah. But he's like, yeah, do you know them? And we're introduced to this whole conflict right away. And then that's wrapped up in 30 minutes. And then it's like, then they go on their own little adventures. And then they get to can't like to, to the, like, I would say the momentum of actually starting to tell the real story. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm never more fascinated and interested by this movie than the dinner scene at Candyland. And uh, maybe that's just my love for theatrics in movies where I love when characters are just in a room like bouncing off of each other. Who knows what? Who knows where these names come from? It's like his name was Jim. He got cold one day. I, I have to say uh, that specific scene. Uh, the first time I saw it, I could not help myself. But when Kelvin uh, Candy pulls out the old Ben skull, I was like, "This is going to be a thirty-minute just him talking about this skull, and it is going to never end." Just because I had just come off in Glorious Bastards, where there was that extraordinarily lengthy scene in the basement, scene, yeah. which is a terrific scene after you see it more and more. But the first time when you are in Tarantino mode, you're like, "Oh fuck, man! Let's just just bam all this fucking dialogue off you." And I just thought that's where I was going, and. Even though it kind of does, I feel like that is Tarantino actually honing his skills. Yeah. And, and it don't showing... take him no fifty years to do it. <laughs> Go ahead, Tucson. Going sorry. going off of that scene with uh, with Joseph Candy and the skull, like I thought Calvin that... Candy. Sorry, Calvin Candy. <laughs> Joseph Candy. I, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking of Joseph Breen for some reason, and he's an asshole. Remember, his Who's... name is Calvin Candy because it's a alliterative because he's a superhero. Oh my god! <laughs> Just okay, Calvin Candy when he takes out the skulls. Like I thought that that was a really important moment for me like watching that so did he just have this skull like laying around yes waiting for the moment that he would want to trash it to make a he just had it's his icebreaker he had that skull there (laughs) it's his stuffed animal on the desk exactly it is it's like that's (laughs) that's what he reduces that that person who served his family for two generations to they're essentially just a, a, a stuffed animal on a desk, so to speak. They're a memento. Like, really, he only saw it as an object, something to decorate his his study room for. And when he goes into the whole, like, uh, extrapolation of, like, phrenology, that's not a made-up science. That's a real thing. That's what I was trying that's to say. A, that's, that's a real pseudoscience that was, that was occurring in that time. And I feel like just the... The presence of that and him like talking about it and, and, and trying to like unpack it, it shows the insidiousness of that kind of institutional racism where it wasn't – it's not even like they 
they capture these people and they have them like housed in this place called Candyland picking cotton, but they've found a way to psychologically sell themselves on sell the themselves as to why they they are burdened with genius so to speak why they have the white man's burden to basically subjugate and basically like cull this entire area in these people regardless of whether they're they're native to it or not and i i think that 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 was that was that was very profound to like see that in a film in 2012 and to have people talk about that because we live in a time where like there are certain states that try to whitewash that stuff literally whitewash where they're talking about like how like the south was built on like like uh what's the what's the 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 appropriate term for it? for the the uh the assisted labor of of, of African Americans. So, yes, 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 that's right. Okay, speaking of that, the whitewashing. So, um, I have somewhat a, a background in education, and I like to keep into the news when it comes to yeah. uh, updates on textbooks and things. Mm-hmm. There have been some textbooks in the South lately who are trying to re-edit their history books, and instead instead of calling them slaves, calling them workers. That's what I'm talking about. Which yeah. is just really heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's something that it, it's the, or even like the term like indentured servants or something like so just you can't even be you can't be an indentured servant because that would mean that you would actually have freedom from the beginning. Like right. you will eventually that that in that implies that you're paying off a debt for your service and that you will eventually be free when that is not the case in this right. one. Not, just not to mention even like the phonetics of that phrase sounds mm-hmm. way more elegant than exactly. just what it was. You yeah. Know, slavery. It, like the, the power of, of semantics both in mm-hmm. this film and just in broader gen- generality, it just kind of like goes back to the idea of how like history is the story that we tell ourselves in order to make sense of the things that have happened in relation to like what is going on now. That's why people feel so compelled to redraw history in order to justify um, past biases. I think another interesting point that, that no one's hit on yet is that when you look at characters who are a protagonist and an antagonist, they are paired up with one another. There are mm-hmm. two major protagonists mm-hmm. in this film when we get to the climax of the film, or at least the second and third act, as Nick was alluding to, there is a pretty much entirely different story that plays up through the first hour of the film. There are two protagonists and two major main antagonists, and I think it's very interesting that the two white, uh, one antagonist, one protagonist, are paired up almost, and the two black, one the protagonist, one antagonist, mm-hmm. are paired up. As we have Calvin Candy, and we have um, Dr. King Schultz, who are the, the white antagonists protagonists and antagonists as they are the ones who are basically fighting each other throughout the film in a kind of weird way. But then we have uh, Steven, who is pretty much at Calvin's side throughout there. Is he is the, He's the house Negro. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it, it's just very interesting that, that the film basically concludes with Jamie Foxx as he is playing Django and and going up against Steven is that is, I, I think, a very interesting message at the very finale of this film saying that we need to get past ourselves to to push forward, which is which is kind of a weird message in one way. But at the same time, it, it just goes with what Calvin Candy says of why don't they just rise up and, and saying that maybe they're getting in their own way, which which is a horrible thing to say. But it's very weird that that's how the film ends with him shooting Steven twice in the kneecaps mm-hmm. and having Steven scream, you'll never tear down Candyland. You'll never get away from this as the fucking house literally explodes. I thought that was great. The it roof was, is on like, fire. <laughs> the roof is on fire. But and, and, and that's giving an actual like, like 
like slapping you in the face saying, look, we're blowing up slavery because we just blew up Candyland, whatever. But we shot Hitler in the face. Yeah. But it's, it's just so burned that down. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 Marquise, the Marquise Ward and the hateful eight burned down his prison. That's true. Oh my God, it's a trilogy of it, burning down places. It's all connected, <laughs> but it's just it's just very. I think sends a, even though I love the film, it sends a very bizarre message at the very finale of the film, where Stephen is the ultimately the one who's physically standing in his way of exiting the door mm-hmm. as as he shoots him and then blows it up. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting simply because like Django was pretending to be what Stephen actually is. And, like, I think it's interesting to unpack why Steven was so adamant in playing into the the destruction of Django's plan. And I think it's because – and th- this is – this is the power of institutional racism. This is the power of, like, being able to contort this kind of stuff that, like, when you think about this, like, what is Steven if not one in a million? Like, how many people are actually on – on, on Candyland as slaves. There's like thousands, right? And then you think about like how they always pick like a, a favorite house Negro who's able to basically act as like sort of a liaison, but he's also sort of the most the most hated person on the plantation. And the fact is the reason why he was so adamant about this is because he was able to basically eke out an existence, a comfortable existence, where he's able to meet Candy in the library and have a glass of scotch I was say, and be able to actually converse with him and talk to them and say, it's like, those people are bullshitting you. He was able to have a, 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 a greater measure of humanity than thousands of others in Candyland. And he is going to do whatever he has to do in order right. to secure that he, quality he of has, life. He has found uh, his place in this world exactly. and he has accepted it and he has almost ran with it, obviously, yes. as, as it goes through, which is... I, I mean, I, I think a very I mean, we see it in slave films all the time. All the time, yes. there is this house Negro who is standing in the way. We, Birth of the Nation, uh, very I want another, another another example of that. I want to talk about that because I haven't actually seen Birth of the Nation yet. But like, I, I feel like Django, like as a black exploitation film, especially where you have like this this former black slave who becomes a bounty hunter who basically kills these white men who are, are subjugating him, who are confining his, his, his bride, his actual bride that he's married to. The fact that they're married like in a, in a world that pretty much like will could, could at any moment try to annul and separate them and put them into different corners. And they do is just like, I, I, I think it's profound, but it's also like profoundly inspired by something that's actually real, which is what the, the film for, for this past year is like a birth of the nation is inspired by the, the slave uprising of, of Nat Turner, who like, he basically like led this like sort of, sort of a rebellion that he was able to like kill like 30 like white slave masters, but 200 black slaves, who were both associated and not associated with that were killed in the process of that. I haven't seen that film yet, so I don't know how much it skews towards the the fantastical in the way of like Django Unchained. I don't know if it's actually more of like like it's definitely a different film than it's, Django Unchained. It's, it's definitely yeah, I bet it's definitely a different film, and I'm really excited to like watch it and like like talk about it with you guys. But I feel like this is something that is very much drawn. It's not as fantastical as people make it out to be or or are offended by and i think that it's only it's it's one of those things that's almost like half 
half half half stranger than than fiction. Yeah, and it's more comfortable to think about it as a fantasy, mm-hmm. uh, as as a white person, yeah. not me. I'm just saying that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but as far as how you sell it to an audience, like mm-hmm. they're going to eat up a story like Django, and as much as they are going to, I think, eat up the birth of a nation, like that is also a movie that doesn't like that does pretty i would say rely heavily on the fact that this is a true story um so it it doesn't even have that headspace to play on like well this is just a silly tarantino movie uh, as far as like having to take it home with you type mentality and and one last thing that i wanted to add like i know we we kind of tangentialize around from the whole pseudoscience thing and this wasn't something that was actually addressed in the actual film but i feel like it's very much like it, it, it's very much relevant because you see um, Broomhilda try to run away and so many other people like uh, D'Artagnan try to run away and you have Django trying to run away. Like during the antebellum era of, of slavery, like there was a condition known as draptomania, which for its time as, as an extension of, of phrenology was termed as a mental illness that proliferated across slaves who tried to actually like – leave their plantation and try to escape because obviously we gave you we gave you work we give you food we let you sleep in 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 a bed with maybe a blanket or so maybe it's like it's like you must be insane to think you could survive on your own as a free human being and if you're able to defeat your other um, you know combatant in your fight to the death you even can have a beer every now and then yeah you so, can have a you, you have a beer and a and they said like and, and to quote this a a pony to polish your pole <laughs> yeah yeah, not, not their words, not mine. I'm just like, wow, that's really fucked up. I know we said we were gonna like keep this episode like t- so sorry. You know? No, that is okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's from the movie. I'm I, sorry. Yes, it's really fucked up. I know. Up. I was just that reminded me of the literary devices that Tarantino employs, like the obvious theme of Candyland, Calvin Candy, The Brittle Brothers, mm. and then of course we have other films that employ um, Beatrix Kiddo mm. um, and every thing like that it's just a nice juxtaposition of all those devices that employ a um childish like tone mm. and then you have the contrast of everything this like really dark like really dark black exploitation um slavery violence thing happening and that's just done so well they even alluded alluded to it when um when they found out about the plot and like they're talking about it's like oh like Broomhilda, don't you like like being like uh like working the house like yes master and it's just like yeah it's like you don't want to like have to like sleep with those mandingos anymore but you enjoyed that and it was just like oh my god that's so fucked up it's so yeah. fucked up. I got to say something that we touched on, but we haven't really expanded upon. But I think that for me, Calvin Candy is maybe the, or not maybe, but for me, the most interesting character in this movie. And for me, one of the most fascinating characters to ever exist in a slavery film. Mm-hmm. And that probably says a lot about me that I chose a white person. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> no, but it doesn't. It's like, oh, go But on. I love the idea that I think Tarantino sets out to like especially in the way Leo plays him uh sets out to come up with the most cartoonish slavery villain you could think of mm-hmm. and yet when you actually peel back the layers he's way more pathetic than he is evil like as much as like he is evil like that that's not necessarily up for debate so to speak but like what influences his worst tendency is more based on how feeble his brain is <laughs> and how uh unfathomable 
unfathomable, he finds like other people's, I would say, worldviews, which is, of course, in and of itself, a form of prejudice. But like, really quick, when it comes to how he, um, uh, what's like, like, okay, here's a good example as far as like he is a person who's like believes anything that he's told. That's why he's the perfect foil for this whole ruse that uh, uh, Schultz and Django picks up. But I love how. He, the minute Stephen brings him into the library, now there is a, he, he's an African-American, uh, he believes his story just because he's basically, I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense, because obviously it does when he says it, but like that's how willing he is to go along with any narrative set out by anybody. And I think that also informs like his, I would say, uh, his, I don't know, stamp of approval with slavery, is that that's what he was told, so why would he think it's any different until somebody comes along and tells him differently? And it also really quick extends into the way he treats Django, which is like the minute Schultz shows up with Django and says that he's not a slave, like he's his valet, he does treat him as such, like more than uh, Don Johnson's character is even willing to, like, because he's even kind of fascinated by him, and he keeps throwing him, I would say, I'm not saying that he was nice to Django, but like he actually lets him sit at dinner, and he, um, uh, you know, he... Treat him like Jerry. <laughs> but Treat he, him like Jerry. He, I'll say this much for such a despicable person. He actually acknowledged his existence, which is more you can say for a lot of other like white slavers in uh, white slave media. Well, and in, in, in to bringing up white slavers in white slave media, look at the, the, the other films that have come out recently, whether it be Michael Fassbender in 12 Years a Slave or a film that only really me and you have seen in terms of people probably listening to this show. But... but um, um, Army Hammer in uh, Birth of a Nation, they're, they're really playing the, the the very clear stereotypical white slaver. They have the beard. They all have the the very same attitude. They all believe one hundred percent that they are the superior race. Why wouldn't that be true? Right, but but that it's a I, good question. I'm rocking back and forth in my chair like <laughs> while doing that. So, but it's it's very interesting that Calvin Candy one hundred percent believes in the in this sort of bullshit that, that that is just happening there. But he also believes in really anything that he has heard or has read because that is what this society thrived on, is that they heard from generations before them that black people are our slaves and that is how we do it and we are the superior race. And you're almost born into this entitlement that you own people and you can control them and it's just this weird thing that Calvin Candy is clearly not the most educated person when it comes to what all he begs on is his education right that's the thing that's what I'm saying like like he has this bullshit nonsense malarkey education and that that's saying something totally about that character who is I feel like the Fassbender and Army Hammer's character are obviously playing a different kind of character, but they're playing the same kind of thing where they have this weird, bizarre empowerment and entitlement, yet they have learned absolutely nothing throughout the course of their lives because they just believe that for for some reason they are the superior being at birth. It's because I said so. It's a yeah, sort of right. thing. Yeah, yeah. And it also, it's just great that, like, through consistently throughout these kinds of characters, and if they're written well, like I think this one is, like, it's it's so great how many, I would say, contradictory or contradictions to their own beliefs that they indulge in, whether it's treating Stephen differently than the rest. Like, if, if he's as adamant as he says he is, like, you know, he shouldn't treat Stephen, um, I would say, 
somewhat better than the rest of like he should technically or he shouldn't even treat Django slightly better just because Schultz tells him a narrative of him being the the, the Mandingo expert mm-hmm. um, but that's that's where his ultimate downfall is and, and what we were talking about earlier as far as that's what I love about this movie is one thing I love is that I genuinely do love that Calvin is introduced as the villain but it really ends up being uh, Steven mm-hmm. which is I think a very bold and like i maybe alluded to earlier dangerous choice and yet what's great about it is that i think it's somehow i would say it takes the climax and as much as it's about race it also lets up on that gas pedal a little bit and it doesn't try to i would say hang that entire uh battle because i i think up until that point like up until the candy land it is so i would say black and white (laughs) so to speak mm-hmm. uh, as far as who's in the wrong who's in the right and it's so and like i'm all for media that depicts that time as a horrible place for to be a black person mm-hmm. and because of how bad white people were so i'm not trying to say that oh well, white people were just more complicated than that we can't reduce them to that <laughs> however i'm all for i would say depictions that try to actually understand the unfortunate uh human aspect behind mm-hmm. that yes. and so and and that's the only way we can actually understand what the fuck happened it, two to three hundred years ago. It's the same thing that, like, when, when they when they try to justify it, I think of the scene from Life is Beautiful. Have you guys ever seen that film? I haven't. It's really, really good. It's basically about um, this, this Italian... Uh, I've seen that. Is that the movie with Roberto Benigni? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah, it's like the guy yeah. with uh, the, the Italian Jew who's, who's, like, trying to raise his family, and, like, he ends up being, like, sent to, uh, to a concentration camp with his son, and he tries to, like raise him and like keep him safe like amid all that like you see before um before the advent of of the nazi regime like in there you see them at like this 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 gala party where he's basically acting as a a, a waiter and he overhears this this exchange between these people talking excitedly at a table about this whole idea of eugenics and it's like you see it's like that's why we're superior to these people and other things like that and it was like they wholly believed in what they were, were doing they understand they, they they believed this was their station for a reason yeah so it's yeah and it's the more we i would say it's chilling and it's also really humanizing in the most heartbreaking sort of way right because the more i would say we have narratives where things are so i would say starkly right and wrong mm-hmm. i mean slavery itself is wrong but i'm saying as far as like <laughs> yes. like no but i'm saying as far as like how humans like enter that system like mm-hmm. the more disconnect there is between the villains of slavery movies and just the white people that are sitting down to watch it today the 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 more unfortunate and i would say uh yeah the more unfortunate aspect it's going to be and like effect that it's going to have uh and that's kind of why i just really quickly bring it back to the hateful eight but that's <laughs> why john the ruth hangman was one of my favorite depictions uh, i think or characters tarantino's ever like written because i think he goes through a character arc of a white person believing that racism doesn't actually exist in in some ways, like mm-hmm. not not because he doesn't realize that like slavery happened. Or Black man, like that. white man, you're still gonna hang. But yeah. like the the minute he gets like he he sees, uh, I would say like the the minute his worst fears are confirmed, that's the minute he does become racist because he always was. And I, I'm just so much more fascinated by those types of portrayals of the people back then because they actually help us understand what we're doing wrong today got me on that stagecoach didn't it 
And with going back to Calvin Candy, so to speak, one of my favorite things that he says in that film is, you had my curiosity and now you have my attention. And going back to the underlying theme that we were just talking about here is power. Like, Calvin Candy, Candy, you see the inside of his home and he has these lavish things surrounding him. And it's like, you know, once Django brings up $12,000 as the value um, of himself, I believe, uh, Calvin Candy is jumping on all of that money and it's just, you know, piggybacking on everything, every, everything everyone has already stated here with how his mentality is and thinking that he is right because he can advance himself, harboring power over others. Even that phrase, uh, you you had my curiosity, now you have my attention, is like slightly condescending in the worst way because it's saying that like he was only letting them in the door because he would like he would genuinely want to see what a white person and a black person had mm-hmm. you know cooped up for him today so he could laugh them out the door. Yeah. But then the minute, like you said, money gets involved, uh, which is another kind of hypocrisy to his whole belief system, mm-hmm. even though it fits right in with what he's motivated by. Uh, it, it's just another way of like how how feeble his brain is and how little he understands about how the world works and how he he works in the world. Uh, before we get into ratings and final thoughts and all that good stuff, I wanted to bring up something specifically to, to you, Anna, and also to everybody else, too, as we're, we're all here on the podcast. Uh-huh. Yes. <laughs> um, and, and that is something we haven't really hit on, which is the actual character of Django and his sort of theatrical run through this through this film. Uh, we see that in the early parts of the film, Dr. Schultz is telling him the story about Boomhilda, as, mm-hmm. he, as he says it. Is, Your wife is Boomhilda von Schaft? Boomhilda the mountain. <laughs> and there's always a mountain. Uh, and, he, and he explains the story of going onto the mountain and defeating the dragon and, 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 the, and the hellfire and, and everything. And we see Django have this very theatrical run throughout the film, whether it be where he creates the entire snowman and actually gives him a fucking pipe and a, and a, and a, and I know that's a, a Tarantino thing, but it just shows his character of is he wanted that to actually be that character. He wears the blue outfit. He, mm-hmm. he, he whips one of the brittle brothers. He also, uh, at the same time, uh, has this very theatrical introduction where he finally is, you know, back to Brumhilda and says, Hey, little Chupamega and that kind of thing. The, the, is this his character of Django? Do you think he is that that character is more about um, a person who's really having those traits and wanting to be a theatrical uh, person and wanting to have these grand gestures in his life and, and being held down and being a slave and not being allowed to be who he really is? Or do you think that says more about Tarantino writing this character and just being this grand character who plays throughout the film and uh, tries to bring the audience in more? Um, well, I kind of see both sides mm-hmm. because I do appreciate character growth in any film, and Django is the obvious answer, uh, the obvious portrayal here. Um, and as far as Quentin Tarantino writing him as a character, it's as if. Uh, He takes the perspective of a conservative of that time um, 
like seeing how slaves really are and then just really breaking away from that and being the hero because it's not like before Dr. Schultz spoke to him, he had any example of or any role model, so to speak, of what he could do in his position. So um, it's just, I think, a really great portrayal of him. Or of what even theatrics are as uh, Dr. Schultz puts on these grand theatrical performances to uh, to to make and, and Django takes from that and then embodies that and becomes even more than what Dr. King Schultz is doing to the point of where he is wearing Calvin Candy's clothes at the end of the film as he murders all the white people and sends the sister flying into the other room and this is ridiculousness which is one of Tarantino's things but like this just incredible gesture of wearing Kelvin Candy's suit and almost looking like fucking Will Smith in Wild Wild West at the end of the film. It's just ridiculous and like amazing at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Um, I'm so glad you brought up Will Smith. I was thinking this the whole time that we were doing this podcast. Will Smith was very close to being Django. Yes. And aren't we glad that that all didn't happen? <laughs> we yep. are. Let me tell we're you. We're thrilled. Yep. Oh, man, I yes. cannot stand Will Smith. <laughs> do you, either of you guys have any thoughts about what I, I brought up? I do want to beat a dead horse really quick, because when you were mentioning, uh, and I'm sorry to the dead horse, when you were mentioning uh, earlier about like costume changes, whatever, just because I totally remember it now and I didn't remember it earlier, but just to prove a point as to how I would say liberally he uses the N-word in this movie, it's it's on the the sign of the store of the haberdashery where they buy the clothes. That it's uh, whatever haberdashery, not minis. Um, and it's like underneath it says "house and word clothes." Like like, and I'm not saying that that couldn't have happened back then, but it's kind of like he's just even when people aren't maybe even gonna notice it, he puts it in there. And I think that's just another indication of like how uh, uh, maybe how I would say un careful he was when uh thinking about how uh subliminally uh this much in this environment using it could uh, could affect an audience anyway that was just a really random thing but mm. uh but yeah but i'm i as far as your question though um when it comes to is Django the the like the man that he always was or was he this kind of legend that kind of like the, like how does he work better as and i i think that's an interesting question because that once again there's troubling aspects if you take one side over the other mm -hmm. because just like dr schultz if we give too much credit to tarantino he's ultimately failed in his liberation of Django as a person as a human being mm -hmm. so it's like on the one hand you have to give credit to tarantino because he wrote this and he directed this with such uh panache that panache. He, <laughs> that like it's impossible to separate his voice from uh Django the character and then then there's something to be said about that and because there are so many iconic images in this movie that I honestly think will stand the test of time. And I think one of them is Django in his little baby, little boy blue suit uh, with the gun standing over one of the brittle brothers that he had just shot. Like just that moment with uh, the score going and the camera panning in and whatnot. Uh, like that's, that's such an indelible image to who Django is as a character and whatnot. And obviously as an effort on Tarantino's part to build him up as this like as the person we've we've always needed but never got until now. However, I don't know that Tarantino ever does make him more than the the myth of the man because we don't ever get to see him come alive uh, outside of his 
black exploitation angle until the very end when he's reunited with his wife. And therefore, if this entire narrative is, I would say, if it hinges on a love story, and I'm one who likes love stories, like whatnot, but if the entire narrative hinges on a love story, including Django's, I would say, almost growth uh, as a person, then there might be some failure on Tarantino's part there, too, in not understanding, I would say, how delicate the line is between whether Django even has free agency anywhere in this movie. Like, um, I think Tarantino is cognizant of it at a certain point because even Dr. Schultz has some great lines when he's first explaining the whole situation to him. And he's like, I don't, I, I personally, I appall, uh, I Paul slavery, but I also kind of need your help. So if I have to like use that, I will, but I yes. don't like to. <laughs> so, right. so having said Dr. that, King Schultz Indian now? I'm no, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Still having said that, I feel guilty. <laughs> um, and, and actually what's funny is we're touching on the one thing is I think Tarantino has never written a character more like Tarantino than Dr. Schultz. Everything about Tarantino, in my opinion, as a storyteller, is instilled into this white person who comes along and appropriates a uh, a black slave and gives him his freedom, but also uses him to get what he wants, and doesn't always, I think, see the hypocrisy behind that. Um, although one thing that differs, and where he, like I would say his story arc comes to an end, is that it's he's. Dr. Schultz is undone by the fact that he finally realizes that he cannot continue this false narrative that he is helping to perpetuate. And that's why he won't shake the guy's hand because even if that's the easiest thing to do. And the one thing that probably could have let everybody walk out of that room alive, it's not the right thing. It's not the right thing to do. And even if it gets people killed, including the people he's trying to protect too, like he, he can't do it anymore. And, but even that moment is, I would say, even more so than the Inglorious Bastards line of this might be my masterpiece, but Dr. Schultz just putting his hands up and saying, I just couldn't help myself. Like, that's Tarantino in a nutshell. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. but All right, very good. Do, do you have any thoughts on what I was talking about too? I think that, like, Nick's pretty much echoed everything that I would have said. <laughs> um, like, I also want to – no, that's, that's fine. <laughs> I think you totally hit the na- – the. oh, my God, it was, it was great. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm just tripping up right now. Um, it's okay, buddy. It's okay. Thanks, man. Whoa. Uh, I just wanted to <laughs> also kind of like make note of some of the costume changes as well because I think that the whole blue dandy thing, like it really speaks to me is like he chose that costume, that costume of, of being the valet. You mean you want to dress like this? He's like, you mean you want to dress like this? Like the reason why it's so, it's so comical and so <laughs> out there is because like if a white person was wearing that, like it, w- it would be absolutely ridiculous. But there's a reason why Django chooses that is because before, like a guy who only had like the the like drawstring pants, like drawstring like potato sack pants, and a uh, a flimsy like wool like blanket and an Afro man hairdo. Exactly. Yeah. It was like well, it's not really a hairdo because that's just the way that his hair well, grows. I, yeah. I, I know. I know. It's yes. what his hair looks like. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally understand. But like. <laughs> The fact that like he no was, mistake he couldn't do much with his hair. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't. He didn't have like his 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 curler or anything like that. He didn't. He didn't have his comb, an afro comb. I had an afro uh, when I was uh, in uh when, when I was in high school. So yeah, I would know. Um, <laughs> you should see Tucson's driver's license. It's, great. it's amazing. Yes, it is. We're gonna uh, post it on the uh, film take website. Shut the fuck up. Anyway, 
Uh, yeah, that's gonna be the top image for the Django Unchained thing. It's just gonna be like my school <laughs> ID. Fuck off. Um, but why does it say Black Phillip on your driver's? <laughs> and he was a particularly racist photographer. Oh my god, he, he just knew. He he just he was just preaching it like that. Anyway, um, like he chooses to dress like that because. Before, he would never have the chance to do it, so he just wanted to go big or not at all. So I can totally, like, understand that. Yeah. yeah. I want to ask one more question mm-hmm. before we go. Okay, so how does everybody feel about the depictions of slaves in this movie? Because on the one hand, I think there's something deliberate about how, like, I would say the slaves feel like an extension uh, on which their masters treat them. So, like, when he gets to Big Daddy's plantation... I kind of cringe every time he's talking to one of the the slave women because she can barely speak and she kind of speaks in that, like, I would say tone that feels like somebody parodying mm-hmm. a, ba- a black slave. And on the one hand, that fits in with black exploitation itself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, is is like, is like is that hamming it up too much and does that become offensive at a certain point? I'm just curious. Like, I, mean, I mean, the way she talks, I think, is meant to be funny. And like, even some of the things I, I, I think we're talking about the same person. I don't know what her character's name is, but when she says something to the to the fact of, well, uh, she's being over being whipped because she broke eggs, and just the way she says it is like very. It, Big Daddy, call it that because it's big. I, I was gonna say, I, I feel like I, I can't sound, I can't not sound racist by saying this, but I feel like she says that because she's supposed to sound black. The, like she's, she, she sounds like that because, like, and, and it goes back to even the D'Artagnan scene where it's just like, I was like, how are you gonna reimburse me? Do you even know what reimburse means? And they're just like fucking laughing at him because they're lording over like a a a system of which they are not included. A system of education, a system of 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 poshness, a, sense, a system of like understanding, like classism that they're not aware of because they're totally like relegated to like this this fringe that they're not allowed to. It's like so basically you've 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 created an artificial system that like puts you in superiority over this person, and then you then denigrate that person because like you've made it by design that they cannot actually move to the same place that you are. So they're always perpetually in that, that, that zone. It's like, it's like, and and I, and I hate to make this analogy because it's, 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 it's so, it, it feels reductive and, and, and dehumanizing, but it's really like, like putting, it's like putting an animal in a pen and then telling them, then like standing outside, throwing peanuts at it and just like telling it to go fuck itself all the time. Just saying, it's like, oh man, it's like if only you knew how to go through that door, but you can't do it, can you? Fuck you. Yeah. And we, and the, oh, another yeah. thing about that very scene we we're talking about that is, I feel like even more degrading is is the all the people who are there who are part of the um, group that's been sent after D'Artagnan mm-hmm. and the one, particular the one guy who he talks to who is sounds very much uneducated who's just I can't, know, can't understand that Opie looking right. fucker. Well, he he can't talk. He you can't and and, he, and I feel like that whole crew that's just laughing along while he's saying, "Do you even know what reimbursement means?" They probably also all don't know what it means. They're just exactly. laughing along because they're white. Yeah, exactly. No, and I, I I'm pretty much with you both on this issue. I guess I only brought it up because I the one thing I kind of noticed upon this rewatch was that. I feel like only Django and um, Brumhilda 
are and I don't I wouldn't even say are given a nuance because obviously they have the most screen time compared to any other slaves besides uh Steven. Um but I feel like they're the only two slaves featured in this movie that are shown in a light that is not reductive. Like everybody else is I wouldn't even say a stereotype of a slave, but indulges in the worst, like I would say, depictions of slave because they either have no voice or their voice is like laughable. And I'm just wondering, like, like what I think the movie doesn't always realize is that Django is not some kind of like, like if Dr. Schultz hadn't freedom, there would be no Django unchained. Mm-hmm. And so like, he's not bigger than he is. So why does he, why is he sometimes written larger than life, even though he should technically if this is of the same world and the same universe, yeah. he and I know that there are some mentions to the idea that he's illiterate and you know whatnot, but it's it's almost like too little for me to fully think that he thought it out. The question well, of who unchains Django. Yeah. yeah. Well, in, oh, I'm sorry. Were you going to say something? No, go ahead. Okay. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing I will say about the the actual slaves in this film is I think we're giving a very wide variety of what slavery was throughout this film. Because although we are shown the the obvious of the the slaves being pulled along and they're and they these slaves who are you know killed by the dogs and um, just the usual slavery of people working in the field, we also see a lot of slaves that fit into very specific roles in this film and I assume in in history where they are the the girl who is the maid, they are the girl who is the cook, they are the girl who is the 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 one who has the very nice dress on. Who's well, that's probably- the that define them as a slave. I'm talking about the rules of, that define them as like a human being. Like, like how do they? Because, and I think this movie sometimes has a white slaver mindset in depicting this wide range of slaves. Mm. Like that's what I'm trying to say. Like it only thinks about people that are not uh, Stephen and uh, Django and uh, Brunhilda. Mm as these afterthoughts of humans. Like, this is just the one who is the maid. And, like, doesn't ever seem to depict them in a way that feels authentic to the human spirit. And I know that that goes with black exploitation, but... That's the unfortunate um, quality, at least with this, that the fact that there are principal and supporting characters, and supporting characters often are not, like, our are the background characters that don't get as much, like, fleshing out. Like, right. They're sort of, like, the extras. And I think, yeah, there is there is kind of, like, a, a very... the disparate gap, so to a speak. A disparate gap over the fact that, like, these extras who really exist as kind of, like, the function of, like, this one is the nurse, this one is the maid, this one is... But, the... but, but oh, just like Steven, they have found their place in this terrible slave-accepting uh, world where they have found a role that has them not picking cotton or it has them not being eaten to death by dogs. Yeah. Where, like like the, the woman I'm talking about who is, when she's on the couch, she like almost like turns her eyes away from watching them, uh, the, the two people fighting and the, and the, the one finally beating him to death with the hammer. We have the, the uh, girl who's holding the, the candy actually holding it. She's like almost like the maid who greets them at the door. And she like, I remember that's kind- a comedy scene. Whatever oh. she she's she's like half smiling throughout it, and then finally, when we reach the point where he pulls his eye out of his socket, she drops the candy, and she just kind of has that shuttered look, where like actually reality begins to finally set in. Of 
no, you're not just a slave who is playing a role. You are a human being watching another human being gore another human being to death. So, but to counteract that, mm. wouldn't that mean that, that the girl uh, that you just described mm. has her only character detail is through association with Candy, a white person, because she's holding Candy. Oh, oh. snap. Subliminal so messages. There's also a Candy scene in The Hateful Eight. There is. Yeah. yeah. That's Candy. I, it's not even something I'm, I'm harping on that much. I, uh-huh. just, I just think that there's a troubling, deliberate way in which all of these supporting slaves are depicted um, to the point where if this is a two-hour and 45-minute movie... There's, I would say, no way he couldn't have, I would say, somehow depicted them a little more rounded as human beings and less like black slaves. Like, hmm. like that's. it seems like the script is this. Like, the call sheet goes Django, Dr. Schultz, you know, uh, Stephen, Calvin, Brumhilda, other people with names. I meant black slave one, black slave two. Other people slave. with names. But you know what I mean? Like, like that's their, that's who they are. Instead of, and I'm but not saying that, he needs to somehow... That, that's... I think I think that's the, the the kind of disagreement that me and you are, are having in our viewing of this film is that this is still a film about slavery and they were involved at, as slaves at that time. That's all they were in this world was to play. Oh, that. They were, no, they were still human beings. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm just saying, I, like, yeah, it's dangerous. It. I mean, yes, they are human beings, yes. but in in a slavery film, these side characters are inhabiting the world that they are currently living in, where they are, in fact, actually still just slaves who have one or a couple purposes that they are supposed to fulfill. I will. I will say. I will say this. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle between you two because, like, I totally get what you're saying. Saying next, like, I, I think that. Quentin Tarantino could have done a better job of like actually fleshing out and like kind of like hinting at like the depth and complexity of these characters outside of their their utilitarian role as being a part of this system of like subjugation on Candyland. And for Alex, like I totally understand as well too because like there is it's also depicting like how can you depict humanization and dehumanization simultaneously within the same context within the space of like an already like like padded out like two and a half hour film yeah and Broomhilda really gets both the dehumanizing and the humanizing part because we see her go through all of this torture throughout the film and she is essentially um to be reductive so to speak the plot device for everything that is occurring and at the very end um we see her like on the horse with the explosion um behind her and then up to that point we have uh Django daydreaming about her mm-hmm. as well and she's like uh, in that dress in the flowers in the field and she's wearing like bright colors and that gives her hope and that's his humanized that, part of her that gives him hope because that's her his idealized version of him of her in his in yes his, in his mind's eye like I, I I'm going back to like this this one trope where it's like the idea of the idea of like the woman in the refrigerator, the the woman who's who's been like disempowered in order to like give impetus to the male protagonist. I don't think that that's necessarily like the case in this film, but she definitely does serve kind of like as an as an object goal for Django to reach and to rescue. She's more of like she's she's not the woman in in the refrigerator. She's the woman in the hot box. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Like, Literally. I, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. So. Just to clarify earlier, mm-hmm. I was not calling you a racist. I was just. <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I, I guess I was just reacting to you in the same way I would react to somebody who genuinely, like, like I would say, bel- subscribes to that narrative, so yeah. to speak. And that's not you, and that's not what you right. were saying. But yeah. like, that's why that came out. All I guess my my final just to cap as far as what I was like want to say is that I just think with the supporting characters, he took the easy way out yeah. in making them what they like in writing them and and thinking well if this is black exploitation i don't actually have to lend any credibility to like the human spirit whatsoever and i know that sounds so weird because some of these characters aren't even in it for that long mm-hmm. so i guess i'm not but that's what happens when you are just bombarded with the the repeated images mm-hmm. of these completely non-entities of humans but like uh, some of the white characters don't feel quite as i would Real. S- yeah, some quite as real, but as quite as and diminished either. Like I, I'm hmm. just saying, as far as like, um, it is a hyper hyper action fantasy of uh, of of exaggerated like historical proportions. So it's it's kind of like this weird funhouse thing where it kind of like you see the middle part, which I guess is like the 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 human like density that's at the core, kind of like being thinned out, while at the bottom and the top you have like either. Like racism writ large in America, or you have like at the bottom where it's just like gunfights and pew pew. Yeah, I mean, this is just what I was saying as far as I think the movie might be too comfortable in the elements that it's exploiting at mm-hmm. times, and, and that's how it manifested in my head. Yeah, okay, very good. Yeah, you guys want to go to ratings and final thoughts? Yes, or did, yeah. does anybody else have anything they wanted to bring up before then? No, I think we got it all out. Okay. Yeah. Well, we started with Anna, so why don't we uh, start our ratings off with her and give your rating out of five and also final thoughts on Django Unchained. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, so my rating, based out of five stars, I would give this a solid 4.5 out of five. Um, not a perfect film, but a very entertaining one. Regardless, it has all of the elements of a twist on a so to speak traditional narrative and it has um our fun violence and uh an interesting portrayal of historical context so to speak and then we have amazing performances by all of our title characters here um leo for calvin candy um jamie fox for django so to speak and christoph waltz as dr king schultz um so yeah it has all of the things that we love about quentin tarantino and uh all of the problematic elements too no one can make a perfect film about slavery and we learned all of that today um so uh 4.5 out of 5 definitely rewatchable and it will stand the test of time which nick addressed earlier Hmm. so those are my final thoughts yeah tucson um I thought we were going in order of how we were being No, but, I apologize. But, you know, no, it no, it's Tucson now. So. Usually oh, okay. we do, oh. so. Okay, yeah, this is, sounds good. Um, yeah, I, I I love this film. I think it's a really, really great film. I think that, honestly, this is probably one of the best, most memorable, and most complicated genre films to come out in the past five years. I think that it will only continue to grow. And I think of all the things that I enjoy about this film, I like that... Outside of the person who created it, like almost every single Quentin Tarantino like project as an auteur, I feel like it almost – they're almost inseparable qualities from one another. You can't separate necessarily the creator from the creator, especially in the case of Tarantino. But I feel like for Django, at least for me, that it's able to stand on its own as sort of like this – it's the best quality about this film is like it's able to stand on its own as – 
a litmus test or a thermometer, like testing the actual like racial undercurrents of when you actually like see it, like past its actual like initial like like screening. It's like that's why I thought that what Nick said at the beginning was just so so on. Fuck, it was awesome. Yeah, it's like I'm sorry. It's it's it just hits the nail on the head. Um, so I I, I totally agree with that. I'm. I always look forward to watch, rewatching this film, and I feel like I'm still going to get a lot out of it, and it's still going to be a testbed of great, um, enlightening, heartbreaking, and and wonderful conversations uh, for years to come. So I'm going to have to say I'm going to have to give it a four and a half out of five. So yeah, yeah. I I am a fan of this movie, mm-hmm. and I know I spent the entire podcast <laughs> as opposed to what you just said about it. <laughs> I know, I, it sounds like I spent the entire podcast shitting all over it, but nah. <laughs> mostly I just wanted to bring up things because I feel like we're all, we all like this movie a lot, so it was going to, maybe I just like to be devil's advocate, I don't know. But Really? But everything I did bring up, I really? do think. So I, I'm a fan of this movie. I, like I said earlier, when, I, when, I first, when it first came to theaters back in 2012, I, I saw it seven times in the theaters. So it, it, it might come as a shock as to what rating I, I will eventually give it in a minute. Um, but it's, it is a sign of the times, for me at least, as to what I would say dictates my opinion. And on the one hand, I shouldn't be maybe as valuable as that. Like, like it's, if it's a good movie, it's a good movie. On the other hand... That but it the, does change with the times. It does. And it's, it's insane to think that art is anything but the sum total of our experience and the movie's message. And so because of that, like things do change. And um, yeah, I, I, I just... As I completely agree with everything that's been said here by all of you as well, which is that like this is one of the most entertaining movies ever made. And then what knocks it down on my rating is maybe there's something wrong with that. Mm. So I'm going to give it four out of five stars because okay. I genuinely do love it. And yet I'm almost ashamed by how much I do love it. Mm. So okay. that's, that's, my, that's my weird, complicated reasoning. I feel you on that. Well, after that, it probably makes me sound like a horrible person saying I give this a five out of five. No, <laughs> no, I, I, no, no. That's 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 what we're talking yeah. about. This film has that has the potency to be. That's able what to I'm trying to say that. is that like if there is merit to this. Like it's so good at what it's doing, and I can understand any side of the fence as to whether somebody thinks it is offensive or isn't. And I don't actually think it is offensive. I think it's sometimes oblivious, which is something different. Mm. Um, so, um, can, so anyway. can I just start off with yes. by saying something that I I think I, I absolutely love about Tarantino, um, and. I, I'm someone who definitely looks way too far into these kind of things, but I, I like to think they're there because I think that people do it purposefully. This is something I brought up on previous episodes uh, that Nick usually disagrees with me with, and that is connections between characters okay. in, in certain films. Well, and he does it explicitly. Characters from previous films that those actors played. Okay. Um, I, I brought it up on the Tomorrowland episode with Hugh Laurie. Because that made no it's, sense. It, <laughs> I brought it up about Daniel Day-Lewis and his uh, left foot as being the only thing that doesn't oh work. Oh, my God. Come on, man. You, no, you, this you... is just – I might go along with you with Tarantino because he actually does play around with that. Is okay. that the Von Shaft connection we're going to get into? It is not. Okay. Um, Which, the, oh, the... that he's Shaft's like, uh, great-great-grand. Yeah, grand. the ancestors. Yep. Yeah. Um, however, it, it is something totally different. And uh, it's just the, the first thing – and I just, for some reason, always just – Every time I see this movie, I just have to like grin a little bit uh, because Christoph Waltz, in part of his sort of uh, telling of the story about who he he was, talking about the circus, 
on his previous <laughs> life. Oh no, you know, you fucking no, know it, man. It's Come not on, man. Water for elephants. Yes. No, that was a book that was already written. <laughs> that, does it, that doesn't make. That doesn't. I'm just saying, like, in what way is no? Yeah, <laughs> I'm putting a stop to that. No, you, right will, now. you are not going to put a All stop right. to it. Because, so you think that there is a connection? No, I don't think there's a connection between. I'm saying because it's Christoph Waltz and him saying, "Let me tell you about the circus." And if you actually know anything about Water for Elephants, it is character. It's very interesting to think about it in that way. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's, it's sort of a, a peripheral like side illusion. Like it doesn't have to. I, I don't. I don't play into the holes like every single movie is no, part of a collective. I, not, I know. I'm not, I know not that you're that not it, saying that, that it is. Yeah. But it, it's it's little hints yeah. of of that kind of thing when you have seen a body of work of a, a character and you have Christoph Waltz of all people who is one of the most charming. Uh, although he doesn't really play characters who should be charming, but somehow he is. And you have him kind of smiling and smirking and saying, oh, I could tell you about the circus. And you know about his finale in Water for Elephants, if you haven't seen the film, I won't want to spoil it. But it's just, uh, it's just, uh, I, don't, I don't know. I read way too much into that, and I like that I read too much into it, because I think it's quite he, Here's how I'm, I'm going to explain this. And this, is, this might like go over the head of Alex or Anna, but I know that you've watched this show. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I, I know at least that you've watched this show. Apparently okay? we're both idiots. No, so. you're not idiots. Like, it's just like, what, what it, it's a nerd here? thing. It's like, okay, so you've seen Space Dandy before, right? Yes. Okay, you remember that, that one episode where they have like that refrigerator? Uh, you've got to be a little more specific. There's a there's a no, no, just there, there's a scene that like shows a refrigerator <laughs> and stuff, and it, and it's alluded to like another episode from Cowboy Bebop, which is by the same creator. It's oh, not yeah, yeah, it's yeah. not saying that yeah, they yeah, exist yeah. in the same universe, right, but rather right. it's kind of like a wink right. to either that person's which like, is exactly work. what here's, I'm saying. Exactly, here's, here's that's what I'm the, trying to communicate. To right, them. right. But here's the difference between what you just explained. And, and what Alex is explaining, which is, A, it's done by the same creator. So, of course, somebody might put Easter eggs that connect to their own actual... I, I think that, you, that you're being restrictive in that because I think that you can give Easter eggs to other like, right. things. I think you can when they're, when they're actually, I would say, um, I, I just say... So, here's my question, really quick, just so okay. I understand the argument you're making. Are mm-hmm. you saying that that line is in the movie to point out... The, no, the I, past role. I, I, I just feel like he could have, like he could have chosen any profession to give to Tarantino mm-hmm. for that scene, and it just so but happens that his the last, no, the last uh, film he was in was, before this film was Water for Elephants, oh, yeah. and just sticking that in there and having him say the line, "Oh, I could tell you about the circus." I feel like. If you had just seen Water for Elephants the year previously, and you see yeah. Christoph Waltz saying that. Like it just, I, I couldn't, couldn't not I mean, think I, about. I that. guess I, I when I hear that line, that I just when I hear that line, I don't think of anything other than it's a purposeful line to indicate how he's going to be the ringmaster Here. of this false narrative. No, no, yeah, wait, wait, wait. I agree with you, sh- Nick. How he puts on a show and yeah. like, right. so I'm just saying, like I, I, I've never, I just like the Tomorrowland reference where right. the boulder falls on his right. Right leg, leg or whatever, and, yeah. And House's and right leg was also the one, or whichever leg. House. It's fine. If you, if you don't like, want to ever read into any sort of connections like that, you don't have to. But Exactly. It, it, it's these weird, winky things in films that I feel like there are too many of them for them not to actually be real. In yeah. terms and I of guess their... for me, I'm, I have the cynical take on that, which is there are only so many stories you can tell. <laughs> yeah, but here, here's... I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to side with, with Alex on, on this one. It's, like, it's, it's not a matter of whether Tarantino can do something like that, 
It's like I think it's a matter of like how he does it. And it's just like and, and really those things exist for people who are actually going to like try to like bridge those sorts of like um to bridge those sorts of connections, it doesn't doesn't mean that these these things exist in the same continuity because they can't possibly. Oh, no, I've never once they, think that they do, or that's right. what you're arguing. It, it's not that they can exist in the same continuity, but really, that's more of something that, like, I think that speaks to a an under an undefined gratification of being able to see like the synchronicity between like these two works and kind of like how they kind of like pass within one another's orbit. And you're able to kind of like draw the connections like, okay, that actor was in that one. And I was just like, it's kind of like a, a nice little hat tip, a nice little wink. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to mean I, I'm, anything I'm, in the literal I'm sense. I'm not trying to ever say that any of these things that I've brought up, the three examples that I've used yeah, no, no, you're on you're this podcast. They're deliberate choices to echo their past roles. They may, right, they right, may right. be de- deliberate. They may not be deliberate. But like well, you're saying deliberate. Way. You're saying well, it's I, a wink. I, I'm saying that they are winks at if, previous works. However, if they're undeliberate, then of course I agree because yeah. the point is it would just be an accident accident or a coincidence yeah, so they can't right. be but i, I feel deliberate. like all the three ones that i've built of just of the episodes we've done previously this year like there are too many examples through the history of film for there not to be deliberate examples of this so i so i just want to make sure just so i know whether i can agree with you or not are you saying that tarantino wrote that line to wink back to waterfell on this, uh, what, what what i'm saying is that i think it's a definite possibility and if, if you if you if you think that it's that it that it's not then then that is fine. I mean anything's possible, so, right? So I can't say yes or no. But to what that. what, I, what I am saying. But is, if you're thinking is, whether I think he would, no, no. But no. but I, we've gotten into this argument already, which is a really stupid argument. Which is, <laughs> but it's fine. But it, it's it's that it's, it's a that, very hot topic. I, I guess so. I've never witnessed the water for elephants. Just to be just to See, be unclear. See, I was going to add. I did not see water for elephants either but, but the I, fact so to... that apparently you noticed a connection between christoph waltz's character and now his character in that water movie i want to watch that too but in mm-hmm. absolutely no way i do absolutely agree with you nick they do not exist in the same universe right. that is for the actor and the audience to know <laughs> the actor was in that movie and i caught on to the reference of tomorrowland i did not see that film but hugh laurie the right leg like you can't hear my eyes roll through the microphone but that is exactly what i did because that is ridiculous <laughs> of house having ended shortly before tomorrowland uh came out two completely unrelated bodies of work everyone knows that hugh laurie is house moving on yeah. so that's that's my opinion wow okay <laughs> boom that's fine Yep. You, you guys can all go fuck yourself. Alex. Um, she just backed you up. No, Ale- she did not. Alex. She just said that you cannot separate Tomorrowlands, right? You just said that. Yeah, it's just, I think that is specifically for the actor yeah. and she, to uh, the just audience, said, I don't know not, just, not between the line work. She just said that she can't literally separate the idea of House's, unless I'm speaking out of turn, House's legs, problem in House, and if that happened in the movie Tomorrowland, that that could not have been a deliberate i got i I got whether or not it was deliberate you're contesting was it done well or was it kind of like heavy-handed uh it was it i feel like it's more so heavy-handed than having being done well that is the thing but are you saying that you think that it actually was a wink right 
Or are you saying that it, well, you think my thought is ridiculous? It is a wink that yeah, makes was, me roll my eyes. Right, right. She's saying you're yes. absolutely right. Like that, yes. that, that's so. Yeah. Yes. Like, you should apologize okay. to Anna. No, I'm sorry. It, do not. So we don't usually tell our guests to go fuck themselves, <laughs> but apparently do not. Alex, it was it was Alex an interesting in back and forth, and he, I wanted to put in my two cents. Usually tells me to go fuck myself, yeah, but I didn't I, say anything. Just go fuck yourself. <laughs> yeah. Oh. No, but what I, what, I, what I meant to say, and I will back up. The two of them can go fuck themselves. You're, you're cool. Hey, I just sorry. wanted to make sure everybody don't apologize. To me, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I'll just say that no, I will go on record and say I don't believe that. But those ever exist ever? What? No, that's another thing that. <laughs> no, that that's every time I've ever brought them up, you think it's totally blasphemy, and I think. But that's like it's just... if you're trying to support a stereotype with three examples. No, no, no. no wait, 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 a minute, wait a minute. We've already gone through this. We've already run for this circuit. We've already run for this circuit. Yep. Nick. Tussaud. Give your final words on this. No, my final words is that I'm on record saying I don't think any of the three examples mm-hmm. were winks. Okay. okay. I think they are just coincidences. Okay. Okay. That's, right. that's my okay. Alex, That's my thesis. Uh-huh. What is your final rating for Django and Shane? Because you never actually gave oh. it. Oh, well, I actually had more to say. That was just totally a random part about it. Yeah. Did you guys have anything else about this topic that we were on? No. This is important. Um, so I do think some of those winks do exist deliberately, but the eye-rolling ones are out there as well. That's okay. my final thought. Yes. Okay. Very good. Yes. Finishing up my actual thoughts. Yeah. We got to do a whole episode. Where we just we like, did dice, it. dissect. <laughs> we just we did. <laughs> but even more, where we go through like as many weird coincidences as we can uh, find, and we'll just do fact versus fiction. Okay, uh, that would be great, wouldn't it? Yes, a, a possibility. Anyway. Oh boy, Alex, please continue. So I, I, I love the film Django Unchained. I feel like it just is so entertaining for me from start to finish. And at the end of the day, even though this doesn't have probably as thorough of a message as a film like the hateful eight does. I still think it gets its message across about what it is trying to say about, um, an African American male and, and in his, his wife that he has in this community and sort of making their way through. And even if he still has to have an aid from, uh, a, a white person who comes along and helps him at, at the end of the day, um, Unless white people change their mentality about about black people, we're never going to get there anyways. If white people still always believe that they are a superior race in every way, then we would not have made any sort of leaps in, 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 in that realm. So I think it still is relevant in, in the story. Only as, white people can solve racism. As, 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 long as, as, as long as white is always treated as the default, that you never have to really preface it like – then that's going to spur like racial, like there's, oh, yeah. there's always going to be, yeah. be racial delineations but and, and divides. That do, kind of do, that. Dr. King Schultz is a character who believes that racism and slavery is malarkey. And he even, even says, if there are any astronomy aficionados among you, that North star is that one. Make your way to a more educated part of the country. <laughs> 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 yes. Uh, and he is just also, too, Dr. Kane Schultz, who I, I do think that 
Christoph Waltz deserved to win the Oscar, even though I liked Calvin Kenya, thought he should, uh, Leonardo should have won more. Just the way he talks to this film is just so amazing. Like, Christoph Waltz is just a master of delivering Quentin Tarantino's script lines, saying, you know, being told, speak English. Oh, sorry, it is a second language. Like, <laughs> it, it, yeah. it's just so uh, awesome. And, and just the, the amount of fun had in every single moment of, or most moments of this film, obviously, the, the dog scene is not a fun moment at all, or the, the Mandingo fighting is extremely uncomfortable, and it is just bringing, bringing home how people were just loving this, as obviously Calvin Candy was, and, and talking about how he owns these people and they're going to fight to the death and how just obnoxious that this scene is. But just the giving into what Tarantino does best of this grand explosive gunfight scene towards the end of the film or the major explosion at the end as Candyland literally explodes and blows up. And it, it just five sticks of dynamite would not have made that explosion happen the way it did. Hey, man, you didn't know about those gas lines. Did they have gas lines? No, they didn't have glass gas lines. Thanks, Tucson. <laughs> uh, and I, I just, I, I just always love every moment of this film. And I, I, I can never forget that the first time I saw the trailer for this film, I thought it was going to be the worst pile of garbage I had ever seen. I'm like, this is not going to be good. This is going to be just offensive and ridiculous, and I'm going to hate it. And ended up obviously being the total opposite is I love this film. I give it five out of five and man, I just, I just am entertained every time. But at the same time, I feel like this film accomplishes what its ultimate purpose was. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> pew, pew. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, thank you to Anna Botazatu. Yes. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad that I could be here today. We yes. are too. And are. maybe someday down the road, we could even have you back for a non Quentin Tarantino episode. If we ever decide to do an episode on Legally Blonde, we could, we could have you. <laughs> yeah. We should. I was going to say, we, if you guys are up for it, I, I haven't seen that in a while, but I've never seen it. I used to do the bend and snap really good. I'm not going to yes. lie. Yeah. It's an acquired skill. It is. <laughs> yes. Well, I think I, I I do think we would obviously be very much interested in you coming back at some point if you were interested in joining us for another episode. Of so. course, yes, you guys are great at scheduling. I find so. <laughs> uh, hats off to you, um, and I would love to be back in the future. And this has been awesome. I'm so glad that I could be here, and thank you so much for welcoming me. Of course, well, I'm, we're we're glad you thought, felt that way. Yeah. Uh, the next episode, uh, we're going to be jumping back into a, a new film and also going to an old film because we're going to have a, a double take, a double episode, much like we did with uh, the, the RoboCop double episode last year. Mm. Even though those are both technically old films, uh, we're going to be reviewing both the film Cloverfield and the new film uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, which is not a sequel. It's it a is blood not. relative. Well, well, we'll discuss that on the yeah. upcoming episode. <laughs> we're going to get to the heart of that question. I think we are. And also, we're going to uh, talk about, uh, does John Goodman dancing in front of the refrigerator, uh, is it uh, something that is as awesome in context as it is out of context in the trailer? <laughs> I think we're alone now. <laughs> So that is something to look forward to on our next episode. If you have any thoughts on Cloverfield, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Django Unchained, or any other movies or 
just stand together random thoughts, really. Legally you can blonde. always send legally blonde. You can send them along to filmtankshow at gmail.com, where you can always find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can find all of our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on iTunes. So from Anna Bodazatu, Tusan Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank. We'll catch up with you next time. Well, shit fire. <laughs> 